Hello and welcome back to Metastation for our recap of episode 508, How We Get to Peace. Uh, my name is Erin. I'm a professor in Mississippi. My name's Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And we are going to start with um, we're gonna start with the happy stuff. <laughs> we're gonna start with uh, with Cain and Dioza and their various, um, or I guess their two conversations. Um, one of them somewhat more, uh, I don't know, foreboding, scolding, and then the other one <laughs> more uplifting. Um, because I think that uh, we want to start with with those two because I feel like. Um, we kind of like in those conversations, particularly in what Kane says to Dioza and the first one, um, we get a kind of like something like a, a thematic statement or a thesis statement. I, and I don't want to say thesis statement because that 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 makes it sound like the the episode is making an argument. But I think like a thematic statement, a sort of question that a lot of aspects of the rest of the argument or the rest of the uh, episode is trying to kind of deal with. And that's um, the issue of, you know. Um, sacrificing the one for the many. Like, this is something that, um, that obviously that people keep doing or, or arguing about doing or whatever over and over throughout the episode. And this is, you know, we finally get Kane, I think, confronting Dioza and saying something to her that I was thinking last week. And this is actually, this episode kind of reversed some stuff that I was sort of expecting to get from Kane and Dioza, especially Dioza, that in a way that I really liked. Um, you know, saying to, you know, point out to Dioza, he's like, I, I'm, you know, from where he stands, they're just swapping one dictator for another. And, and, he, you know, he kind of gives her that speech about like, you're heading down the same path that he went down, you know, when he was kind of being a, a something of a despot, you know, on the arc, um, and that Octavia's gone down, that we've seen Pike go down, and and that's that idea that you know that we have to make we have to make these sacrifices, you know, in order right. to save our people, to save the many. There are some people who are going to have to die, and therefore this is, you know, this justifies these actions. Um, you know, and as Kane points out, like the the difficulty is that that as long as you I think to me, you know, seemed like kind of what he was pointing out was like, if that's the way that you look at these problems, if you always look at them as like the solution is who do we sacrifice? Um, you know, somebody's gotta be sacrificed who it is, it's kind of like, you know, that old saying. To a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. You know, like if that's kind of the frame through which you're looking at, at leadership, you know, at, at sort of problem solving, um, then, then you're going to keep making that mistake over and over again until the point where you, you're sort of cross, you know, maybe even without realizing you cross over that line. Um, and, uh, so, and, 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 you know, he sort of also brings up that idea. Like, I think so much, so often throughout the show, we've had characters making arguments again and again and again that the means justify the ends. You know, Kane is finally the character who stands up and says, like, the means don't always justify the ends. You know, like, at some point you have to stop, um, and look around. Um, so, so it felt to me like that sort of speech that he gave to Dioza was really, it, it kind of felt like, Especially the more I rewatched and the more I thought about how 
that speech sort of resonated with and reflected on things happening elsewhere in the episode, it felt like kind of a land, something of a landmark speech. It was like a, a yeah, like a really sort of like a shift, you know? Yeah. And it, what I, what I liked about it was it felt like, um, I, I mean, I loved, I loved everything about the, the Kane and Diosa stuff. It was, it was so good. It was, for me, it was the clear standout of, of this episode. And, and I'm really, what I, what I liked about that monologue is, and we talked about this a little bit before, like I, something that they've been, that they've been doing over the course of, you know, from like, sort of like latter half of season four, I think through now, at a lot of moments for Kane that I really like is, um, is, is re-anchoring us back to the sort of, the sort of constant reminder that he is, he is never far from, the memories of the terrible things that he's done. And, and all he wants to do is to save other leaders from making the mistakes that he made. And he's tried it and failed so many times, you know, like he's tried to get through to people and they don't listen to him. You know, we talked about like in, you know, like I think last season about how he was like the Cassandra, you know, like he's telling people, here's what's going to happen if you do the thing you're doing and they don't listen and they do the thing and it happens anyway because Kane was right, but nobody listened to him, you know, and, um, and, and that he kept brokering peace treaties that somebody would break. He kept like creating a strategic alliance that would then get destroyed. Like he's just trying so hard and, and people aren't heeding the things that he's saying or, or caring about the fact that they come from like actual personal experience. Like when he says to Bellamy, don't do this thing because it will turn you into this person. He's saying it because he's like, I was you. Like, I am 20-something years older. I made the same set of choices. I had these same sets of beliefs. It turned me into a person that I didn't like and I don't want to be anymore. And I want to save you from that because I care about you. And you're younger and you still have the potential to become a different guy, you know? And Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, and he tried that with Octavia. It hasn't worked. Um, So I think the thing that is really kind of revelatory about Dioza in this episode is I loved, I I love that you see like it wounded her like she was oh, she was yeah. it struck her to like in like the deepest it was it was like it was the harshest thing he could possibly have said to her and that was so yeah. interesting to me I was like whoa okay so she is like she looked like she gotten slapped yes. in the face yes she was like what that was a gut you're punch. calling me a dictator yeah, yeah. and I yeah, because I think it became clear in that moment that. That him saying that to her, that the fact that he looked at her and saw a ruthless dictator who would abuse her power was so, ran so contrary to everything that she believed to be true about herself and everything that she believed was Mm -hmm. true and important. Yeah. You know, and you could see, I think, you know, Dioza is in so many ways so similar to, to, a lot of our characters, especially Clark. I think in this episode, I see so much of Clark and Dioza. Um, but also, so different. And the big difference is she listens to Kane. When he says, I see I see you as this person. And she has that moment of like dissonance of like, I'm not that person. She stops and she listens to him, you know? Um, so, so I think, yeah, it was like really, really striking – that that for Dioza, you know, like that was not a moment of 
defiance or or defensiveness that right. that that actually like triggered it really something landed. in her. Where she came to find her. Yeah, she came to find him later, and you could tell like a little bit of it was like. Like, a need to explain to him. A right. need to make him understand, I'm not that person. Like, I'm not. I've spent my whole life fighting that person. And I have no wish to be that person. I don't want to be the person that you see me as. But I think also a sort of spark of understanding in her, like, she heard the warning part of it, you know? Like, she wasn't just mm-hmm. like, yeah. don't worry, don't worry, I'm not that person. She, you know, like, you could tell that that she kind of, she kind of took that, that, um, that feedback, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, for lack of a better way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. That she, she heard and it was, it was really, it was really satisfying and, and very emotional. I thought to, to, for me, just as somebody who just loves Kane so much to feel like, you know, somebody is finally listening to him, like genuinely deeply <laughs> yeah. listening, listening to the things that he's saying that he's learned about the kind of leader that he was, about the kind of mistakes that he's seen other characters make on the ground, about the possibility for what the world could be. You know, like he's looking at that valley with like the same way that he looked at like the marketplace in Polis, like that sense of possibility that like, it doesn't have to be like this. You know, like it, we could be better if we stopped making the same dumbass mistake over and over again. And, and that he, and that when he says things like that, you know, he's not, he's not preaching. Like he's, he's been there before and he has a real sense of humility about the choices that he's made himself and the cost to his soul of having been that person, you know? So I, I thought it was really, really powerful to have somebody who can speak with real, like, moral credibility about the cost of making these choices, say to Dioza, here's what's going to happen if you keep doing this thing that you're doing. And, I, and I'm telling you this because, like, I definitively know that this is true, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and yeah. Because I've lived through I've this lived particular... It. Yeah descent into hell like more than once over yeah. and over and over yeah again. <laughs> yeah and i and i like that <laughs> on both sides of it yeah and and him like and the you know the line the line that i just found really haunting you know he was talking about like like staring into an abyss i've stared into before i and what was what i thought was really sort of poignant about that is the reminder that like there's this sense of urgency to what he's doing like he you know he is he is so afraid all the time of like not being able to stop the thing from happening. You know, like like he he just wants to fix it and he know you know, like he's he knows that he's on a train and he knows the train is speeding out of control and he can't stop it. All he can do is try to get the driver to stop it. And you know, and it's up to them if they listen, you know, and and it's like, God, like it must be so exhausting <laughs> to be Marcus Kane. You know, like <laughs> I he know. just all he does is he's just trying to like save people from their own bad choices. But I do feel like, <laughs> you know, I think all of the the sort of back and forth that we get through this episode of beginning to really um flesh out in really extraordinary detail, I think, where the differences really are between Octavia and Dioza is a reminder that like you know, that he, nothing that he did or said could get through to Octavia. You know, he tried to give Octavia the same pitch about, 
a better version of humanity, and he almost got killed for it. And he gives it to Dioza, and Dioza, who initially kind of looked at him as like, you know, your your value to me is that you're the carrot I dangle in front of my doctor to get what I need from her. You as a person, right? Meh, basically useless. You know, <laughs> you're kind of dead weight. Um, and so, so I think the irony of the flip in his personal circumstances, based purely on just his own, you know, caneness, I think is really interesting. You know, like he he almost. This is this is the part of him that almost got him executed by Octavia. You know, this constant, constant pressure on the person who is in charge to be considering their choices from every angle instead of just impulsively doing what they want to do. And and in the bunker that almost got his head chopped off because Octavia was like, How dare you talk to me as though you have anything to say? You know, as though you have any right to, like, question my authority and judgment. And for Dioza, I think the fact that what he says to her lands so deeply that she does a complete 180, you know, and, and some real, and some real introspection, like, about herself, about who she's been, you know, and how she's been leading. And, um, and that it's, it's painful and mortifying to her to be perceived as, you know, as that, as that person and the way that I think it sort of lets us into the fact that, you know, the way that she does the thing that everyone else does, which is like the bad things I'm doing are temporary, you know, like I mm-hmm. like for, for like, and, and also with the telling herself the lie that the bad things I do won't permanently change anything. They right. won't change who I am. They right. won't, like if I do this bad thing, I'm not actually I'm not I'm not moving the goalposts. I won't I won't just keep doing it again and again and again. And I think you know there was the the second scene. I thought that kind of emphasis on seeing on perception and the differences in perception um, seemed really important to me. You know when Caden says to her, um, you know she says, tell me what you see. And he says, I don't think we're going to see the same thing. And I think that really resonated with um, the the line where, you know, he kind of calls her out for what's in that, you know, he's like in that notebook, like that didn't look like, you know, you're, that didn't look like someone who was, who, who hated war to me. And she says, I wasn't, I'm not planning for war. I'm preparing for peace. And I think like they're really, you know, the sort of unstated thing here that, that Kane is getting at that I think, Dioza recognizes, you know, kind of slowly through the conversation is that what Kane is trying to, you know, trying to get everyone to see is that prepping, preparing for peace, preparing defenses is, is preparing for war. Exactly. You know? Like, yeah. Like her claim, like, no, 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 I don't want war. I'm just preparing for peace. Well, if you're preparing for peace by, you know, building bombs. Right. Then that's what war still- is. Yeah, exactly. Like you're still again, it's the sort of like to a man with a hammer, everything is a nail, you know, like I'm preparing for peace with weapons because I have weapons because the only way I the only way she knows how to look at her situation and the problem is through a sort of military lens. And he's try and, and through a lens of kind of us versus them. How do I stop the enemy so that we can have peace? And, you know, so when he says until you see that we're all just people. It's this is not this is going to be nothing but a battlefield. Like, I think you know, it finally lands. Like, 
what has to change is fundamentally how like the lens through which you're perceiving the world or people around you. Um, and, and, you know, and that, that like beautiful moment they have where she sort of like allows herself to open up and show him like that she has the capacity and willingness to see the world through that lens, you know, whatever, whatever she's felt like she has to do, whatever her sort of like automatic responses are as a, as a military person, you know, like, I think, I think the reason I, you know, that, that scene was so touching and I almost cried. And I think the reason is, is because, you know, Ivana just like that she, that, that her like wistfulness and her longing. Yeah. Yeah. For like, that world is so palpable. Yeah. It's like, it, it's, it's a moment for Gioza that really parallels the little bit that we get for Shaw about the like, you know, like being an altar boy and his motorcycle, you know, like it's this, it's this picture of, the world that they came from that they miss and a, and a, and a memory of, you know, like we're watching her remember a version of Charmaine Dioza before any of these terrible things happened. You know, when she was like yeah. a high school girl kissing her boyfriend under the bleachers, like that, that picture yeah. in her mind of who she used to be and, and everything that has happened since then. And especially since they landed on the ground has made her feel like, there is no, like, it's not just that there's no way to get back to that for her. It's that that isn't a thing that can exist anymore, you know? And the yeah, fact that there's she there's no is, place in the world for that anymore. Yeah. And especially for, like, for a daughter. So, like, when she talks about, like, yeah. you know, like, the 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 way it kind of lets us into her, like, her ambivalence about her pregnancy, which I think is really interesting. And, and, they, and they touch on it nicely, like, that she... She's been having a lot of complicated thoughts about bringing a daughter into a world that looks like the world that she's living in now because it feels like those simple things, those like innocent, child, peaceful, human things are like dead. Like the, those things got burned up mm-hmm. when the world burned up. Those things don't exist anymore. And, um, and nobody and maybe even like, for her, the version of her that could have been just happy, a happy pregnant mother also, yeah. I think, probably was burned up even before she left. You exactly. Know? She, yeah, yeah, yeah. When the world became something that that she felt forced her in a position of becoming a quote-unquote terrorist, where she had to start, you know. So, so yeah. So, like, seeing her sort of taking a moment to access that hopefulness, that yeah. wistfulness, that desire that that prayer that a world like that maybe might be able to exist someday for her daughter um was so beautiful and i think that's the that's the part that octavia can no longer access right because that's because the part of octavia like like octavia like like the octavia that she was in the flashback in his sister's keeper where she like puts on the mask and goes to the party, you know, like that, like, like before she gets arrested, like that, that sort of last moment where Octavia was, was wholly like innocent of all of the shit that happened later. Like blood Raina needs that Octavia to be like dead, you know, like, like she, and like, just to skip ahead a little bit, like, you know, um, 
like that moment at the very, very end where Bellamy tries, Bellamy tries with the like, what he used to say to her when he, she was a little kid and he used to feed her. And it's just like, it doesn't even register. You know, like that part of who she is, is gone. And she likes it like that. She wants it to be gone. And that's the difference is that Dioza, you know, people like Dioza and like Clark feel like and there I think there's some interesting parallels to to Abby's addiction story too like they feel like the things that they're doing now are temporary and situational and not who they really are and that a time will come when like I just have to like I just have to do this thing to fix this problem and then once the problem is over then I can go back to the person that is who like who I see myself as you know um, right right and uh and what I and what I really loved about that scene in the valley with Kane and Dioza was like, I think the, the ways in which it's like the, the kind of connective thread between that scene and the one that came before it really is the fact that like, you know, Kane is the only person that Dioza has spent any kind of amount of time within a very long time who has a lens on the world that is about possibility or that is forward looking, you know, like the people that she's been surrounding herself with. And it isn't even just like, not even just the, like the serial killers and, you know, murderous criminals, but even when she was like in the terrorist cell, like even when she was in the military, you know, like her, her entire adult life has been, surrounded by people who have like who've given her this kind of lens that she has in the world you know about like things are things are dark and you sort of fight your way through and kind of do the best that you can but you know but there are going to be times when you're going to have to make horrible violent choices and that in order to survive and that's sort of just what you do you know and i don't think she's ever met anybody like kane who would sort of stand there and look out of that land and be like you know I've already decided where the well is going to be and how to dig out houses from the ground so we can keep the trees. And like, he's just standing there like, like swoony, starry eyed, like urban planning, you know, like, like farmer cane, <laughs> you know, um, and it's so beautiful and it's so emotional. And, and I feel like, you know, everything about that way of engaging with the world is new to, is like revelatory to Diosa. Like it's not, He's the first person who, you know, who could speak to her on that level and and offer her a different way of seeing. You know, like they're looking out at the same piece of land and she's seeing it as like a, you know, like a tool for survival over which they're going to fight a coming battle because Blood Reina wants it and she wants it and only one of us can have it, you know, and whatever. And he's looking at it seeing like, you know, in a hundred years, we could have like a working farm and dozens of houses. And like, he's just, you know, he's seeing, he's seeing something hopeful. And, um, my, my only, my only real grief about this scene is I like, I just love Diosa so much. I don't want to lose her, even though like I sort of come into every I season know. thinking like every, every season I fall in love with a villain and then they're getting killed. But it felt very much to me like, Okay, so this is a setup for 
Dioza dies and Kane takes care of the baby. Kane and Abby take care of the baby. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. like it felt like this is like the, you know, he's the godfather now. <laughs> you know, like he. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. She's going to die and they're going to like hold the baby. And they're going to raise name, hope. They're yeah. going to name her hope. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Which is another one of those things like, <laughs> you know, Jason, when we had him on last time for an interview, we got a question from. Um, from a listener asking about the theme of hope, and he said that it was he didn't think it was a theme. And, theme, and I watched the scene, and I was like, "You're so full of shit, keep, Jason." I just keep getting more and more perplexed about what the hell he meant by that. Me answer too. When you have an entire fucking scene where you're like, right. where like talking about hope, and Dios is like, "Hope, that's a beautiful name," you know, like what that what? <laughs> were you just like trying to like? Not give away spoilers because right, it felt like a theme to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I thought, but I I also have to yeah. say I have to say that I love how blatantly this is lifted from cabbie fan fiction. Granted, it's <laughs> a different pregnant lady, but like in like in the cabbie fandom, the like. The like two most common baby names, and it's always a girl. By the way, it's a hundred percent of the time. It's always a girl, um, and her name is always either Hope or Eden. So like, <laughs> so now like they're in a place that's called Eden, and the baby's name is Hope, and I'm like, and oh they have Lord. a baby whose name is Hope, and 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 there's a very good possibility that it will wind up being the adoptive cabbie baby. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I'm still holding on to cabbie baby theory. Like I'm. I like and it was all like and like the fact that he's like and feeling the baby kick and he like goes all soft and like oh my god right? get this man some grandchildren like he's just like <laughs> like let him have a scene with Maddie his like biological clock is ticking really bad um seriously it reminds yeah. me of, like it's like which I get like my dad's the same way I'm just like my dad's the baby whisperer of our family and he wants grandkids so bad and his kids are all almost 40 and not obliging him and he's so cranky so like I get where Marcus Kane's coming from <laughs> I feel it but um but it definitely did feel to me like um you know I mean I I know I know that like we don't we don't know how many more seasons the show has. We have a reasonable supposition that season six won't be the end because the CW usually announces it. You know, Jason said, like, whatever the sort of the big plot twist is, it sort of takes the show sideways. They could, like, could open up territory for several more seasons after that. So we don't really know. But it does feel to me like I would like to believe that that hope, that that young baby hope, um, being introduced in this way, being like, you know, being the daughter of these, you know, people who came from the past, you know, like, like, and she was, you know, and, and she was born in, like, she was frozen in cryo. So, like, this, you know, this baby is already, like, a hundred something years old. Like, this, she's just tied to the past. <laughs> she's, just she's just tied to, like, like, a physical link to an earlier version of the world that, that when she's born, like that, that however, however the story ends, that hope being kind of the symbol of like the continuation of the human race of the new generation, you know, birth possibility, um, that, that, that she continues to play a role, like that she, that she becomes a, you know, a, a, a character or a person or a symbol that, that, allows us to sort of live 
even even only occasionally, like in this moment, in this sense, like even if the show ends before we get to see, you know, the mill and the farm and the village is being built. And even if it ends with it doesn't look like that because the valley is destroyed and that sort of peaceful future happens in a different way, in a different place. Um, but that idea of of a of an end game about humanity finally settling down and rebuilding itself you know that that hope plays a role in that um and which is why i think it's really interesting and we'll circle back to this a little bit at the end that um the the return of hope's presumptive father i think <laughs> throw a wrench yeah, right. in the works a little <laughs> bit. Um, well, and that's actually, that's something else that I, speaking of Kane and Dioza, another little thing um, that I really liked in their first scene together um, was the sort of, you know, tying into that kind of the, the one to save the many kind of thing, you know, by, by agreeing to not barter for McCreary Um you know, the 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 decision to not trade him back, I mean, which first of all, like, who in the right mind would swap McCreary for Raven? Like no I one's know, that right? dumb. Like Yeah, uh, that is please. a terrible, terrible swap. Like I even if you liked McCreary. Even if you liked McCreary, yeah. Like I know you banged on an asteroid, but like <laughs> Raven is Raven. Like, come the fuck on. Like, Murphy, what are you? Ugh. Anyway, um, but I know you bet like, on an asteroid, yeah, but that's yeah. great. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but I did. But like, but I liked that. You know, I liked that sort of little un sort of silent conspiracy plotting moment between the two of them. Where it's like, here's that like. Here's a nonviolent way to um, to create, you know, to create something resembling peace amongst the Allegis crew. You know, like like the um, she's smart enough to know that you know McCreary like has his own faction that's been kind of lampshaded earlier in this season, which I expect to kind of come back in a big way. So. So I like, you know, just the sort of little like they actually they the two of them work together extremely well as co-leaders you know in in a way that i really liked and and that i that i hope potentially foreshadows um a version of like whoever you know whoever survives at the end of this season which with the show is always sort of a crapshoot you know i think i think a version of like whoever's left of humanity that is sort of jointly led by Kane and Dioza would be in pretty good shape. Um, yeah. You know, I think, I think that the way, especially this new version of Dioza, who, you know, has had her eyes opened a little bit more to the fact that there's a different way to live than the way that she's been living and that she has something, you know, like she has something to fight for now that's, that's more, forward looking and less abstract. You know, it's not just about survival. You know, like like which is something that yeah. something else this show says all the time. Like maybe life should be about more than just surviving. Like maybe it's not just about who wins this war and who gets the valley. It's about what kind of people do we want to be and what kind of future do we want to build for our children. And and that's why I feel like you know, giving Dioza stakes in this that are personal because they're about 
her own daughter, you know, I think positions her really in a really lovely way with like the other moms on the show that we've seen making the choices that they make to, you know, to do something for their, for their daughters, for their children, you know? Um, and I think it changes her investment in what the future looks like in a way that I think is really interesting. Yeah, no, I think, I think the, you know, the, the existence of her future, her unborn child, you know, the, the sort of is the lens that, that, you know, changes the way that she looks at that world. You know, I think it's, it's Kane, but then also the baby because, because she has to be thinking about, you know, there is a life to come. Um, you know, she has to think forward in a way that, that you would otherwise wouldn't. So I think there's a way that sort of her impending motherhood, um, you know, like that sort of fundamentally alters perspective. Um, you know, so that, and that's the reason why, she can access that, you know, that piece of her that can see the same world, you know, see the world in the way that Kane sees it, which is another reason why, um, maybe we can segue back to the bunker now, because it's really fascinating that the, we got a sort of fade, crossfade from Dioza's face, you know, sort of looking upwards saying hope directly to Cooper's face. As she lies on the floor of the, the worm containment unit with her belly full of, you know, like gestating worms. Right. <laughs> um, so we have this sort of direct, the direct cinematic parallel between those two women. Um, and a sort of another parallel between they both have, they both have life building inside of them. You know, there's something inside of them that's going to sort of burst out at some point. Um, but on the one, you know, for Dioza, she, she has the potential for new life for a future. Um, for Cooper, the thing inside of her, first of all, it's going to kill her. But I think it's also significant that she's sort of like growing the, these worms that are also potentially the doom of, of the future that Kane and Dioza are seeing. You right, know, keep, right, they keep exactly. Keep warning yeah. us about this threat that the room, that, you know, like the worms, Releasing the worms could destroy the valley. Like they are, they are a threat, not just to the human beings there, but to all life there. They don't actually know what's going to happen when they release those things, you know? Um, so that, that sort of direct parallel between like, on the one hand, you have Dioza who is, who is fighting, but fighting now we've seen for a vision of the future that although she she struggles to really believe in it, she wants it to be peaceful and she wants it to be, you know, a sort of a a, a productive and, and peaceful world for her baby. And on the other hand, we have, you know, Cooper and and Bunker Crew fighting for fighting for that same territory. But sort of seeing the world rather than seeing it through the world, you know, through the lens of like children, seeing it through the lens of, of basically like of war and of like, of this sort of biological weapon that they are planning to destroy. Um, and I thought that that kind of created a really interesting, you know, sort of through line where I think, I think we're being really prompted to think very directly about like, those conversations between Kane and Dioza and what they, how they sort of resonate with 
um, either directly or sort of ironically with what's happening in the bunker. Because in the bunker, um, you know, that question of the one for the many, sacrificing the one in order to save the many, it, that's really at the heart of everything that's happening. Um, so, you know, at a bunch of different levels. And so, uh, so, you know, for instance, like Cooper dying, as Bellamy points out, like Bellamy makes that argument to Monty, right? Like we're killing her so that hundreds of people don't die by going to war, um, you know, by releasing the worm and then going to war in the valley. So she's the one for the many, she's the trade. Um, but then there's a kind of, but you know, there's all these problems of, of, you know, Monty pushing back and saying, like, are we really doing this again? Are we really making this justification again? There's the question of which one? You know, if you're going to well, sacrifice right. the one for the many, which one is the one that you're going to sacrifice? And how do you make that decision? Um, so, um, and and I think there's also a kind of like, I was thinking about, too, in terms of um, sort of ironic parallels or sort of reversals from uh Shallow Valley and Diozen Kane to the bunker we also have a kind of sense of like so so the sh- the the valley is a place of fecundity right it's green it's lush they're going to have they're growing more food that they than they could possibly eat for the you know for the people who are there you have a woman who's pregnant with a baby that is you know vital and 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 going to be born into this world um i think also Especially cutting from Dioza to Cooper, who is the person who is in charge of food in the bunker, there's an all sort of implicit parallel or, or sort of implicit comparison between the the fecundity and the and the um fertility of Shallow Valley versus the barrenness yeah. of the bunker's food, of uh, the bunker's um sort of, you know, um hydroponics. Their their plants are dead. Their food sources are dying. Um so I thought that was really interesting that there there's these sort of like constant, you know, the 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 bunker is sort of like the negative of the image of the valley in a lot right. of really interesting ways. Yeah, I think I think so too and I think that the um you know, I think one thing that that I I found really interesting about about Cooper um in in this episode, I think leading up to you know, like leading up to sort of the the way that she is utilized as the sort of like the you know the the one that we're killing to save the many, even though technically, as Monty points out, it's like Cooper is actually they're killing the one to save the one. They're killing Cooper to avoid having to kill to Octavia. Save. And yes, exactly. And the exactly. the yeah, yeah, yeah. of which the second level, the secondary result of that is that also like like that the many will be saved. Like that will be how they get their friends out. That will be hopefully how they avert a war. But in, in mm-hmm. the immediate, they are killing the one to save the one. And only Monty is kind of willing to call that by name, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I also thought was really interesting about Cooper in this episode was that we got, um we got our first real kind of humanizing moment of her with Monty. We got the reminder that like, Cooper is from farm station, so she knew the Green family. Like she, when she says your mom mm-hmm. would be proud, like she knew mm-hmm. Hannah. Um, yeah, like she might even have known Monty. Like they, you know. So I, I think, I think something that I think becomes important context for the choices that Monty makes later is that 
Cooper is not an abstraction to him. Cooper is a person he probably grew up with or at least knew who she was. Or the very least, even if he didn't, does the same job that he did and has the same, has what he kind of perceives as like a similar role among their people, a similar lens on the world, Um, the ability to recognize his skills. Um, You know, he... He feels like he's really close to a solution. And she very naturally is like, look, I don't want to ever come back to this place after we get out of here, which is super valid. (laughs) It's a a relatable feeling. Um, Girl, but she basically is like, yeah, like you're, you know, take the farm over, do it. Like that could, if it works, great. You know, like she sort of gives him her, her blessing a little bit to take over where she left off. And so I thought that like having, you know, which which is for me was the moment where I was like, okay, yeah, so she's definitely gonna die <laughs> because <laughs> because we're getting to like her now. We had this little moment uh-huh. yep. where you know, like you pair a character yep. with Monty and they're nice to Monty, and it's impossible for us not to love them after that. And then it's like, ooh, yikes! But um, <laughs> but I liked I liked how that um that kind of reminder that before she was like the biological warfare worm mad scientist. And before she was the person like validating and affirming all of blood Reno's worst impulses that she was a peaceful farmer, you know, like that she was a, she was a person who like, if things had gone differently could have been invaluable in shallow Valley, you know, like if, if circumstances had gone sideways, if Octavia had been a different person, if, um, you know, if, if Jaha hadn't died, maybe because he seemed to be the person that she had the relationship with down there. Like, there's all these things that could have gone differently. And Kara Cooper could have been, like, the salvation of humanity with her next-level farming skills, taking already arable land and extending it. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I think I think the the – the loss of, and I, I had, you know, I had some kind of, I had some complicated feelings about, um, which I think I was meant to, about her, her dying at all, her dying in this kind of cold and calculated of a way as Clark and Bellamy just sort of like stood there, like, I was like, it, it was, it's brutal. It's really, really, really brutal what happens to her. Um, and, and I understand narratively why it's necessary, but it's also like, it's a it's a very very dark place to take all of these characters. You know, like it's yeah. it's been a long time since we've seen Bellamy calculatedly murder a human being and watch it, you know. Um yeah. And uh so so, but I think in their defense, Kara did do the same thing to a guy last week. Yes, yeah, she absolutely did. Like it, it is, it isn't <laughs> like I, I, I don't say this by way of being like Kara Cooper was a nice person who should have lived. Like she was definitely going to die. It was spelled out. Like I, like I get it. I and yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. but I do. But it was, it was really hard to watch them watch it, and it was hard for them to watch. It. And I think that was intentional. Yes, that, that every you, we were meant to feel with it's them. It's really ugly. That this is yeah. a brutal, ugly moment. Yeah, and and they aren't happy to be back in doing yes. that kind of ugly, brutal thing. Um, you know, and and the sort of discomfort of like. Fuck, all right, here we go again, I think was very much yeah. the point. And that a line and, and that a line had been drawn, you know, they're standing there watching it, and I think we're remembering what Monty said to them, and I think they're you know, and they're remembering what Monty said to them. And I think I think, you know, 
it felt to me like that was supposed to feel different from every other time they've done that. You know, like. Yes, yes. Like this, this time is a little bit different because Monty did point out like, you do have another choice. Right. You know, from doing this particular thing. Yeah. From doing this, like you said, to avoid something else. Right. Um, so if you're going to do it, then okay, but at least like, but like you have to, I, I think the thing, the thing that I really appreciate about what Monty, Monty's role in this episode in terms of, of the Cooper arc in particular was like, like again, and we talked about this before, like, like acknowledge that your choice is a choice. Then if you're going to do it, Fine, fucking fine, do it. But acknowledge that you've made a calculation and you've decided that even though if you're like, if your argument was what you actually said it was, which is we're killing one person to avoid killing many, the obvious choice is Octavia, but you won't. Okay, so acknowledge that this is not an inevitability. This is not a force of nature that fell down upon you. This is not, no one's holding a gun to your head. You're deciding. And then if you're going to do it, okay, do it. But like, call the thing by its name, you know? And I, and I really feel like, and I think that's why it felt different was because they did. Like they, like yes. they, you could feel what Monty said land in like the way, like the looks on their faces when he's like, fine, then kill Octavia. And you know that they won't. I mean, like, you know that they won't, but they also have nothing to say because everyone knows that's the most obvious answer, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and, and they all know why they're not doing it. And yes. Not doing and it and that the reason, yeah, the reason that the reason why they're not doing it is because the very foundation of the argument that they claim to be making, which is like, no, 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 we're just, we're just doing the math. You know, like this is, this is divorced from our personal opinions. We've just made a strategic calculation that one death is better than hundreds of deaths. And Monty's like, uh, you're full of shit. You know, and <laughs> yep. And I, and I appreciated that because I feel like, um, like I think, like you said, the, the ways that that mirrors, you know, like Monty and Kane sort of serving really similar purposes kind of in parallel in this episode to say like if you're going to do the thing i can't stop you from doing the thing but you need to face who you are now like you need to face what that makes you and you need to face yeah. the reality behind the reason why you're making these choices which is that they are choices like you are intentionally doing this thing and so in both cases like both you dioza and you cleric and bellamy actually don't have the level of moral superiority over Blood Reina that you comfort yourself by thinking that you do, you know? And um, and it lands for both of them, but it lands differently, where for Gioza, she's like, fuck, you're right, oh my God, and has a little kind of come-to-Jesus moment, and then it shifts her thinking. And for Clark and Bellamy, they go through with the thing anyway, but it doesn't feel the same way to them as it has when they've been in that position before. You know, like they can't. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, it, it does lay, it does later land for Bellamy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like eventually it kind of gets there. And I think it's really, like, the really interesting thing to me, I think, is that, um, you know, Monty does it. Monty, he, he, he yells at Clark and Bellamy, mm -hmm. but he opens the door for them. Yeah. You know, and I think he has a moment of sort of like, feeling like he doesn't have a choice or telling himself but but I think but him saying that to to Clark and Bellamy I think when we see him later I think it kind of hits home for him like okay it, it, 
to open the door to help them do that is a choice that he made again. And, and I think he also sort of confronts, this is a choice I keep making over and over again because I haven't been willing to face the consequences or pay the price of making a different choice, which is that if I don't do this, then people I care about will die. And the fact that I didn't do something to prevent that makes me have some, bear some level of responsibility for the death, you know, for, for people that I care about dying. But, you know, like, it's another that, that, um, Monty and Harper scene was another really landmark moment, you know, along with the one with Kane, where that was really two characters, I think, making a different decision from what the decision that everyone else has made throughout basically the entire series. Yeah. Was like to sit down and say, for Monty to say, like, I don't want to, I don't want to make the decision ever again to kill one person to theoretically save a bunch of other people. Like I've made that decision the last time and I don't want to do it. You know, and he's, and he, and he's obviously like wrestling with it, you know, and, and um, uncomfortable with it. But the fact that he's able to kind of say, like, I'm drawing this line. I'm going to make a different decision going forward. I'm no longer going to simply accept that that is the best and only thing that you can do in this uh, situation, you know, and, and I'm, and also, you know, we're not going to, as Harper sort of assures him, when they leave, we're not going to go. They're also rejecting that kind of like de facto, like, okay, we can't stay here. We got to go. Like, uh, you know, to go back to what we were talking about last week, like, all these people being like, this is this is the only thing we can do. They're sort of flipping the script again and being like, nope, actually, we can't stay here. We're going to stay here, um, you know, and we are going to we're going to transform this place into something new. And we're going to, you know, we're going to break really break the cycle. I think Monty here, we sort of like, you know, falling back into the cycle that he'd done before, which is helping Clark and Bellamy kill a bunch of people um, or kill a person, you know, um, and this is this is Monty finally saying like I'm done. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to enable your murder anymore. Um, and I think like the the so there's this pattern that I kind of noticed rewatching this episode, um, uh, and it comes up in a couple of places. And one of them was with Monty, which I think is kind of fascinating. Which is that, um, and it kind of ties back into what we were talking about with. Cain and Dio's in the valley and perception, you know, where like, where you look out over a valley, you look out over an expanse of land and different people can see completely different things. You know, Cain sees a village and a well and crops and, and, you know, houses and, and whatever. And, um, and, uh, in Dio's notebook, she sees that same plot of land as, you know, as a sort of like a military map where she erects defenses. And we see that same plot of land drawn out as a map on Octavia's table. Mm, and she oh, sees yeah. it as a battlefield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she mm-hmm. sees it as a battlefield. She sees it as where are the strategic ent- entry points where we come in and release the worms? Where are the places where we erect our, where we, we plot out where we're going to engage with the enemy? Um, You know, so there's like different the same place is sort of people seeing different potentialities in it, either for life or for death, that this place has both of them. And I think one really fascinating thing that kind of happens over and over again is you have, um, so you have the Hydra farm 
and you have the algae. And what Kara sees when she looks at the hydro farm is death. She sees dying plants and impending starvation. And she sees whatever horrible things she had to do during the six years and especially during the dark year when they were struggling to survive. Um, you know, whether, whether it turns out to be cannibalism or whatever else, you know, like she looks at that room and she sees, she sees the end of something. She sees, you know, this place is blood soaked, that, that, that this is a place that is no longer the place she goes to, to grow food. It's the place she goes to grow worms to, to kill people. Right. Um, and, and then you have the algae. Um, and Monty keeps pulling out the algae. What Bellamy says over what, you know, what people keep saying over and over about that algae, when he pulls it out, what Bellamy says is, is, you know, when we tried to eat this the first time, we put, Murphy went into a coma. Um, this stuff has the potential to kill. When, when Kara reaches for that, that algae and she dips her finger in, she's about to put it in her mouth, Monty grabs her because it's, it's something that could be toxic. It could be poison. And then, of course, at the end of the episode, Bellamy uses it to um, to put uh, Octavia into a temporary coma. But what Monty sees when he looks at the algae is the potential for life. It's something that's toxic if you eat it now, but it can be transformed. It can be used in a different way to bring the plants back to life. And when he looks at the hydro farm, he doesn't see a battlefield. You know, he doesn't see something soaked in death and blood. He sees he sees plants that he could, you know, revive. That he, he could take one poison, the algae, and he can add it to something dead. And between the two deadly things, he can make new life. He sees the possibility of transformation um, in these in these two thing in you know in in these places that where where other people only look at them and they see sickness and death um and i think that's another way that monty is really similar to kane you know and and yeah. to Dioza in that scene where like just the way that he looks at the other people look look at things and they see an end of something and he looks at something and he sees a beginning um and that's particularly the sort of like contrast in the way that um that Kara looks at the sort of thinks about the bunker and the hydro farm versus Monty. Like it really, really makes me wonder. These are these scenes, and I was thinking, like, oh man, like did the right did the writers like did they actually read the Georgics? Because like all I could think about is like the Georgics. There's always scenes over. Like I mean, first of all, like farming is described as as war over and over again in a bunch of different ways. Where like you know, it's like you have to sort of battle with the elements. You have to, you have to strategically sort of like kill this thing to make this thing live. But then on the other hand, like war is also something in the Georgics that disrupts agriculture over and over again. That, that war, when war erupts, it takes people out of the fields. It sows them with blood and with weapons. Um, and it's only later on when people come back that they can they look at it again and turn it into something that grows and while they're doing it they'll turn up you know they'll like they'll find the blades they'll find the rusty swords under the ground as they're plowing it up but there's a sort of like way that the georgics takes farming and war and kind of like links them together in this cycle of of like 
war and rebirth and agriculture and growth and death. And, and I was just like, man, like, this is really like kind of the most Georgic thing ever. <laughs> I would, I would so love like, it. All I want in the whole world is to tr- for it to turn out that like Jason Rothenberg read the Georgics for you because we talked about it so much <laughs> last season. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Me too. I was like, wait a second, did that actually happen? Like, I would, I would die. I would like cry. Because I would be so happy. We're right in your wheelhouse right now. Like, this is literally totally, like absolutely. we're in your area. Yeah, yeah. Like literally, literally. You know, if you you, you like. I, I swear to God, like, everybody just go read just the second book of Georgics, just the second book, which is about, it's about growing things. And there's a, there's a couple places in the second book. Um, there's one places where the place where they describe sort of war invading and, um, farmers being forced to turn their plows, the crooked plows and straighten them into swords. You know, so, so on the one hand, war invades and it, and it destroys, you know, it's sort of like it, it impedes farming, which is the thing, the basis on which all life depends, you know, um, because it forces you to turn things that turn tools that should be used for growing food and for sort of perpetuating life into tools for destroying. Um, and then later on, there's another sort of image at the end of that poem where like, again, like you, there's an image of. The wars have passed. He's thinking, the poet's thinking about these wars just ended. And he's thinking sometime in the future, there's some farmer's going to come along and he's going to be plowing this field and he's going to turn up the bones of the people who died in this war. And he's going to turn up those swords and he's just going to, he's just going to sort of marvel. But like, it's literally an image of a place that was in the past a battlefield that has been turned into, um, into a farm. And I just kept thinking about like that's for Monty. That's what the the bunker is. Yeah, it's a battlefield that that for some people right now could only be a battlefield. But Monty sees a farm. He says like in the future we could turn this thing into something to grow again. And I think that's an interesting sort of like it's an interesting way to look at Kane's line too. You know, as long as until you see that these are we're all just people. This will be nothing but a battlefield. That that whether a place is a battlefield or 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 a farm field is just a matter of perspective. Um, it's a matter of what you choose to do with it. Um, and it can be both and it can be one and then the other, you know, but like, but that, that there's always the potential for both in these things, you know, there's a potential for, for growth and for death in those, in that algae and in that, um, in that hydro farm. And it actually made me wonder if, like there might be some twist about because when when Octavia says we're not taking the worms to the valley, we're taking the eggs. Your eggs being like uh, the the embryonic worms, you know. Um, so it made me wonder if it would if there's if there isn't some new some wrinkle to come with the worms where they they might be afraid that they're going to destroy everything, but then it turns out there's a way that can be transformed or leveraged into something else. You know, it made me kind of wonder if if the idea that the worms are nothing bring nothing but death might eventually be turned on its head. Uh, and I don't know, maybe not, but it just kind of like the way that those things were linked together made me wonder. Um but uh just to jump ahead um to um jump back over to the valley. I think another place where I, I think um, when I started thinking about this theme of like tools that 
seem to only be useful for destruction, being kind of transformed into a tool for life. Um, another place where that happens is with Abby. Um, yeah. When sh- when Vincent, of all people, the fucking yes. serial killer, speaking of tools of, you know, like instruments of death that suddenly become uh, instruments of healing. Right. You have a Vincent serial killer. Vincent has the idea. Vincent realizes, like, oh, hey, we have we have these mining tools which were designed to pulverize and destroy rock mm-hmm. that you could tweak, just tweak a few little things. And now it's a medical instrument to cure us all of disease and allow us to live. Mm-hmm. You know, so so that's another place where you have this sort of like, all you need is a little flip in perspective. And and what that the tool that you think can only smash. The thing that you see is only a hammer can be turned into something else. Which I thought that was really, really like an interesting little theme. And I thought like very, very subtly done, you know, it was like, I, I appreciate the way, like there's so many levels to this episode. I watched it three times and I watched it twice in a row today. And I feel like every time I watch it, like more and more sort of more of this stuff kind of unfolds. Yeah. I, I think, no, I think you're right. I think, I think one of the things that I, that I think thematically, kind of runs through a lot of the storylines in this episode is is this idea that like like inanimate objects in general and like land and spaces in particular don't have intrinsic positive or negative moral value like they only become exactly. good yes. or bad depending on how they're used so like like painkillers are both like a tremendous medical innovation that help a lot of people. And also, as we see like in the storyline now, they're causing destruction for Abby, but in the hands of a different person yeah. using them for a different purpose. Like they exist for a positive reason. Like Allegis is stocked up with medical supplies because they need them to keep people alive, you know? And that's a super um, great point. Yeah. It totally goes the other way too. That's something mm-hmm. that was designed for good, right. you know, that has a potential for good, be, can also transmute into something that produces. And I think that, like, you can see that also working the other way a little bit with, um, you know, Bellamy's love for Octavia, mm-hmm. his, his sort of mm-hmm. like devotion to her being something that is standing in the way of them being able to actually execute the solution that is really the solution that they need exactly. to execute. Exactly. Yeah. Know? Like the thing that um, they really need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then also I think you can see that too in, in terms of with the, with the reversal at the end with, with Bellamy, once he finally is sort of able to face like, when he's, when he's able to confess to Clark, you know, if it were anyone else, I would have, I would have already done it. You know, when he's able to say out loud, like to admit to himself, the only reason we were fucking around with the stupid like fourteen point Cooper plan right. is because <laughs> is because I couldn't bring myself to do what I knew we needed to do. Um, that we see, you know, that that you know, and and closing with the my sister my responsibility line and the way and him bringing up the sort of hey, remember all the things that I did. Remember all those those lovely childhood memories that we had sharing food when I when I was a child and I gave you my food to to protect you and keep you alive, um, you know when when I told myself my sister my responsibility to protect you all the time that those are things that he has now realized um, are are ultimately reasons that he has to poison her and you know like put her into a coma. Um, so there's a kind of like reversal of of. He has to sort of, sort of change 
change the way he he understands what it means to protect his sister, you know, sort of like the same kind of like, all right, this is that, which isn't a tool, but you know, but again, but, but the same kind of reversal of something that it is something that, that, that love, that protectiveness has the potential to be good and bad. Yes, exactly. Um, And Clark admits that as well. And that little, you know, that, that conversation between Clark and Bellamy, which, Obviously, I have a lot of very intense feelings about. <laughs> um, it's just like so adorable, but like, but but you know, the whole conversation is basically about like about the two of them admitting to each other and to themselves, you know, like my deep love of and protectness protectiveness of this one particular person in Bellamy's case, Octavia, and in her case, Maddie, um, you know, is something that that is that has been steering us wrong. You know, yeah. it's like. It is not in and of itself inherently bad, but it can either drive you to do wonderful, amazing, great things, and it can drive you to do terrible, stupid, destructive things. Um, and, and on Clark's side, you know, like her, her sort of admitting that her love of Maddie was like, it made her willing to kill Octavia, knowing what that was going to mean, knowing what that meant to, to Bellamy. And she feels tremendous guilt for that, you know. It, it, she realized she has a moment of reflection. She realizes like, I'm the one, like I'm, I'm letting my heart rule my head. You know, I'm making mm-hmm. decisions based sort of desperately without thinking them through based on this deep love. And Bellamy saying, you know, mama bears don't think they just protect their young. And it's such like, it's such a sweet moment. You know, he's got that sort of like softness and twinkle in his eye and she sort of smiles. And there's a moment of like, they really, you know, of like connection and understanding. But I think also just, that that like this is what mama bears do and but like there's a kind of sense in which like mama bears are themselves a force of nature mm-hmm. and whether that protectiveness is good or bad depends on whether you're their young or you're the thing that's threatening their young yeah um and and like obviously and like you know i think the the reference to mama bear there the sort of textual reference to to mother being a mother as mm-hmm. being a sort of force um you know like Going back to Dioza, her her incipient motherhood being the thing that makes it possible for her to really want peace more. Like again, like motherhood, you know, this that this part is a sort of nod to the darkness of motherhood. That that motherhood itself is is a force of nature, and forces of nature always always carry with them inherently destructive and creative forces. There is nothing that is in itself good or bad. Um, but what you do with it kind of, I think sort of thematically seems to how it all com- be, how it all comes together. Yeah. I, and I think that that, um, what I, something that I just really, what I loved about that little, that kind of little mama bear exchange, you know, between the two of them was I, I liked that, you know, it's a, it's a recognition of that they sort of, that they see, they see this thing that they share in each other, you know, like, like that. Mm-hmm. That Bellamy sees Clark behaving towards Maddie and Clark sees Bellamy's behavior towards Octavia as like, like they, they understand like that, that they're driven, like it's like they're driven by the same forces, but just to to have somebody be like, you know, like, I get why you're making this decision. And also, I think crucially, that both of them are willing to shift their initial plan around in order to make sure that the other person's 
person is protected. You know, like Clark wanted to kill Octavia Mm -hmm. and she didn't because she knew what it meant to Bellamy. And Bellamy wanted to get Mm -hmm. the hell out of town, but he stayed because Clark was staying because of Maddie. So I feel like that that Mm -hmm. kind of connection Mm -hmm. where it's like, this is your person, this is my person, but like we're, you know, like Bellamy himself is quite a mama bear. We have seen it, you know? Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why he can say that to her. Because he gets it, yeah. Because he gets it and she knows that he gets it, you know? And that's, and, and, and there's a kind of like a true empathy in the sense of sharing the same feelings, you know? It's like, like they both are able to sort of, like you said, like, like Clark can sort of like hold back from just off, you know, just getting rid of Octavia because she understands that, she understands like what what she's feeling for Maddie is what Be- is what Bellamy's feeling for yes. Octavia, you know, and vice versa. So this it really is a kind of like I understand, I feel what you feel, and I'm and sort of honoring it and and um and protecting it. Um, can I have a moment for some shippy flail? I was gonna say like <laughs> I I would like to turn the floor over to you. <laughs> You take your time. <laughs> I mean, it just, you know, and especially because I think we've had a couple of episodes where Clark and Bellamy were together, but really just doing, mostly just doing like plot related things, right, you know, right. like they, they haven't really had a moment to like stop and like talk, you know, and, and connect in any way other than just sort of like, uh, fuck, okay, this is happening. We got to go do this, you uh-huh, know, uh-huh. since, um, since I think whatever the last, uh, Sandworm episode was was that five oh four with the this where the sandworms showed up Is uh, that right? five I think but yeah five oh five okay yeah five yeah, yeah anyway whatever whatever the one is yeah yeah you're right because they four is they got out of the bunker yeah hmm. right and then that's right and then five oh five is when the um is shifting sands yeah so that one um so it was just like really nice to sort of like. To have that little moment, but I, but yeah, but I just like, I think, you know, it's, 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 there's still, you can see that, that they're sort of like still a little bit sort of, or at least Clark, especially Clark, I think on her side is still a little bit sort of like unsure of what their status is, but like the sort of reassurance of like, they just, that, that kind of like deep understanding of each other, um, still being there, you know, and, um, I think like the really fascinating thing to me, and I was talking about this with, uh, with a couple of, of, um, of my fellow Bullark shipper friends, but, you know, um, the, the sort of dynamic that seems to be building, Clark keeps commenting on, and then she did it in, in Shifting Sands too, but she did it here again, where she, you know, Bellamy says like, where she's, you know, she feels guilty for, for, She's sort of like reflecting on her own behavior in the wake of their failure. You know, she's sort of reflecting on, or I guess in the wake of the murder, they don't know that it failed yet. Um, they're sort of, she's sort of reflecting on her own behavior and, and kind of wants to apologize for him basically for like being willing to kill his sister. And in response to him sort of admitting like, Hey, like if there were anybody else, I would have, I would have totally just like, yeah, like, yeah, let's go kill that dude, whatever, if it weren't Octavia. She has that moment where she says, like, I don't, you know, I don't know if that's true. You know, I, the old Bellamy would have definitely done ba- that, but this Bellamy wouldn't. And I think there's this really interesting way where, like, it feels to me like Clark is sort of looking at Bellamy, like, like, sort of in awe of him. Like, he's this, she, like, really admires him. She's like, 
you've become this like really like amazing person. You've become the person that like that that I hope to be and that I and that I want to be. You know, like you you really are. You know, you're able to feel these intense feelings of love for this person, and yet somehow you aren't just like running around acting off the cuff on them all the time. And I'm not, you know, whether or not that's entirely true, I'm not sure, but she seems to be sort of looking at him very admiringly, like, like, like with sort of like starry eyes, like yeah. you're the you're the most amazing Bellamy. Like you wouldn't do the stupid thing. Like you would you would be better than this. Um, and, and while at the same time, I feel like like Clark really feels. I think Clark is facing some very difficult and painful truths about herself. You know, I think she really, for kind of the first time, or maybe not the first time, but in a different way, she's feeling. She's sort of reflecting on the things that she's willing to do to protect Maddie and, and like really sort of feeling like, okay, this person I am who's doing this thing, um, she doesn't like it, you know? Like, I think, I think she's, she seems to sort of like, she's kind of feels like you're great, Bellamy. I'm kind of garbage right now, you know? Like she seems to be feeling a lot of like, guilt for being led with her head as she puts it um and and so of course like she needs that that little moment of reassurance from bellamy where she says like i'm the one who's sort of being led by my my heart over my head and so that the mama bear moment is like it's sort of like i have a lot of feelings about it because it's again like bellamy sort of looking at clark and being able to understand as they always can like here's what this other person needs emotionally in this moment. Like, this is the reassurance that they need. They need sort of like someone to say, like, I understand you. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're thinking. You know, like, here's the perspective on who you are and what you did that that will, that will that kind of helps contextualize it in a way that will make you not feel so terrible. You know, like, Mama Bear is like, you did this that you didn't think you just acted. And he says, well, that's what mama bears do. Mama bears don't think they just act. And, you know, and that she's able to kind of like smile for a moment and like, and feel a little bit like safe um, with him in that moment. Um, but like, but yeah, so like, like that, that aspect of the, of the um, dynamic is still there, but, but I, there's, there's a kind of reversal. It seems to me between like, it used to be Bellamy that sort of looked at Clark, like, you're the most amazing, you know, like, <laughs> I need you to reassure me. And now Clark's like, you're the most amazing. I need you to reassure me. Like, how the hell do I do this thing where I like, I like, just am willing to kill someone for one people. I used to be willing to kill people for like, all of humanity. Sure, whatever. But now I'm doing it for one person. Like, how do I process this? <laughs> um, yes. So like, I, I that was just, you know, as all with all Bilark cute conversations, they're always about murder. <laughs> yeah, this is um, really true. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very cute conversation with about about murder, and it touched my heart. <laughs> it would no, it was it was so sweet, and it was just it was, um, you know, I it really felt like after you know, like after that conversation that I had with Monty, and how kind of, you know him calling them both out like that in a way that that sort of created a sense of i i think like real trauma around watching you know like watching cooper die like the thing that they had to do but they now no longer feel like 
they don't feel like they're on solid sort of ethical ground with it anymore. You know, like it, it, yeah, they had yeah, to yeah. face, they had mm-hmm. to face that the choice they made was a choice instead of, like, it wasn't heroic in the, you know, it wasn't yeah. like, mm-hmm. like, we're saving the world. It was like, we're, we're killing this person to kill Octavia. It's not like that she hasn't done anything bad, but this definitely isn't like, self-defense for example like this definitely isn't like like a death that in the moment is justified it's calculated and you know like and it's and it's uh and they both like they both like they feel really shitty about it they're doing it anyway you know (laughs) but um but i did feel like you know in that scene between them it's like it isn't like it isn't absolution it isn't like we don't need to feel bad about the thing that we did but it is like like I like I see you and I understand the reason why you made the choice and I would have done exactly the same thing that you did, which is I think something that I really love about their relationship with each other is that sort of like even now, even after like six years apart, that thing that really defined their relationship so much, especially in the first two seasons when they were like partners and everything all the time was that feeling of like, like, look, like I would have done this same thing that you did. So like, so, so like so if it's bad it's bad but also the reasons why you did it make sense to me you know so mm-hmm. like yeah. like you're not you're not out there like hanging alone like over the ravine being like you're like you're not like trapped stu- like you're you're doing a thing that makes logical sense given who you are the choices that were available to you you picked door number two i would also have picked door number two like i i i, I get it like i see you you're seen you know um yeah 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 exactly. and i and it's and it's different from saying like the thing that we did doesn't count or isn't bad because we had what we think of our valid reasons to do it, which is a story that like people like Octavia tell themselves, you know, like people like Octavia say like, my actions have no negative moral weight because I've made myself the arbiter of what morals are. (laughs) So, (laughs) so very conveniently, you know, like, like (laughs) if, you know, like like Nixon saying, if the president does it, that means it's not illegal. <laughs> you know? um, <laughs> exactly. And yeah. you know, and Clark and Bellamy aren't those people, but it is. Um, but it is really nice to sort of see them fall back into that old pattern of like just having somebody be like, "I get it." You know, like like I look at you yeah. and I see you and I get it. And um, and yes. Clark, you know, Clark knowing like. You know, <laughs> like, sorry, I tried to kill your sister. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. Well, and also, I think, yeah, and I, I also think, I, I think that moment right before they go in, they drag uh, Cooper into the that room where after Monty storms off, where Clark says we're doing the right thing, and Bellamy says, maybe if you say it enough times, I'll believe you. I think like part of Clark's guilt is like she feels like, uh, fuck, I'm like dragging Bellamy into <laughs> into one of these <laughs> things again. So I think, you know, it is a kind of movement, you know, moment where where he is kind of like, you know, like there's a sense of forgiveness in which he's sort of like, look, like we're in this together and I would have made the same decision. Like we're mm-hmm. both mama bears. Right. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I don't blame you. I'm not mad at you. I don't resent you because we had, we just had to stand there and watch a woman die together. Like, we both made that decision. We both accept yeah. that we made that decision. We both know why we did it. 
you know, and we do it again, even knowing every, that it was wrong. Um, so yeah. So that sort of comfort of like, like you said, just being like, being like fully seen, you know, like not just the things you did, but all the things behind what you did and why you did it. And, and, and even just like, and even, and even the doubts that you still harbor, you know, like. Yes, exactly. Yeah. All those things in their totality, they can kind of like see in each other, see them, see each other sort of fully, you know, rather than reducing them each other to like, you're this aspect of yourself or this aspect of yourself or this aspect of yourself. Um, yeah. Which is just like, I love them so much. I know. <laughs> Uh, there was really good Bullard content in this episode. I was like, oh, Erin, yeah. I'm so happy for her. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob Morley apparently at a con, uh, a convention recently, somebody asked, I, I guess somebody asked, like, what are, you know, your favorite Bullard episodes or what are good Bullard episodes or something? And he said 508 <laughs> and 513 and everything in between. And so, um... It was a little bit, watching this episode, it was a little bit sort of like, huh, I wonder why he said that. And then I got to the end and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> there it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the other, while while we're blurking, um, <laughs> of course, uh, we can, the the end scene. So, okay. Mm. So, so obviously, like, my first reaction to, you know, Clark getting arrested and dragged off and then Bellamy going in to see Octavia and, and putting her in a coma was like, oh my God, like he did it to save Clark. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think, and obviously, you know, and the, and of course the Blark fandom is, is understandably their reaction has largely been like, Clark is the thing. Like she was the line that, that he couldn't cross and let it go. And like, that's, she's the thing that made him ready to, to take his sister down. And I, and I, I had that reaction to it first. And then, um, my friend Shosh um, has been writing – she writes reviews or, or sort of recaps sometimes for this site called The Avocado. She pointed out in her uh, in her recap – you know, obviously she's a, she's a big Blark fan too. She's like, she's like, I understand why the fandom says that, but she's like, I think that, that that's not the primary reason. It also kind of like diminishes the, the full – the full sort of like significance of that decision for Bellamy and how, how much it took to get him there and watching it again, I was like, I think that's probably, I think that's, that's accurate. Um, because like really honestly was for one thing, um, everybody knows like all of Octavia's seconds know why Clark was arrested. So when Octavia being in a coma doesn't actually save Clark. Um, she's still under arrest. You know, it's not like, it's not like Octavia is the only one who knew what was happening. Um, and then also there's all the other sort of like table setting of, of Bellamy is aware that the reason that he's been doing all these other things is because he wasn't willing to take out Octavia. He knows that he's been avoiding doing the thing that he needs to do. Um, you know, that uh, making it about Clark diminishes the extent to which it's really about Monty, you know, and it's about, it's about Bellamy being forced to face his own true motivations through Monty. And then also Bellamy, I think like part of the reason why it sort of hits home for him is because, you know, Monty is one of his people. He's one of his, his space crew people. And, and Monty is sort of, 
he's he's alienated one of his most important people because because he was avoiding doing the thing that he knew he ought to be doing and he and as a result he was forcing Monty to do something else and so the fact that the, that plan failed um you know and the fact that he knows that really what he needs to do is is to take out Octavia all of that stuff uh, combined with you know the the like final 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 straw like the camel is already loaded up with straw and Clark is the final straw but all that other straw is still you know very very important so the thing that's all of that kind of adds up to Bellamy basically being like at the end being like okay I got to I got to go do this thing um so so I think it is important to sort of like it's important to look at the that the sort of the the weight of that decision in its totality I think without the kind of like shipper perspective um you know because it is such a huge like huge moment for Bellamy like oh yeah in the entire fucking run of the show the one the red line the one constant for Bellamy has always been he won't do anything to hurt his sister and this is finally the thing where he's willing to do something that hurts his sister. Like, that is huge. Um, yeah. And it has to be a sort of accumulation of so much. Right. Um, well, of which Clark is one one part, but just one part. Right. And it's, and it's also, like, I mean, to to me, because I, I, I'm with you, like, I also, like, I also saw it, you know, both ways. But to me, it felt like, um, I I think the... The flip comes if with the realization or the sort of not not even the flip, but the the I think the wheels begin turning when they realize like we killed somebody and we did not stop the war. Like Kara Cooper yes. died for nothing. Because yes. they like because they didn't know what Octavia's plan was. They guessed wrong. The valley's gonna die. Like so so the the fail like, safe for, like, for, for Oh go ahead. I say like the the failsafe that they gave themselves was like we don't have to hurt Octavia because we can create this whole plan and avert war by killing this other person that we don't care about so much. And you know and that's the part that Monty calls them out on is this sort of like flexible ethics of that being like the fact that you don't like Cooper means that you're willing to kill her over Octavia who you do like or I mean, or are related Love. to. No one really likes her yeah, much yeah. right now, but um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she's hard. She's very hard to like. But um, but so so I think that. I, I mean, think- I think to me the test is if if their plan had failed and Octavia had arrested Indra, Bellamy also would have decided that he had that they had to take. No, I think so. Yeah, I think so too. I I think. Um, like I, I think that the fact that the sort of the realization of how far gone Octavia is, that Octavia is willing to murder Clark and that, and this is something I want to come back to in a second, cause I'm really, really interested in it. And that Miller is willing to execute Clark. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that the depth of that realization of how intractable Octavia and her hold over these people are like the fact that like like it's not going to be so easy to stop a war than to just take the worms away and i think that realization mm-hmm. that like octavia was already three steps ahead of him 
with her own sort of built-in layers of paranoid secrecy because Indra didn't know about the eggs. Indra was left mm-hmm, out of the loop. Mm-hmm. The only person that Octavia trusted was Cooper. Um, mm-hmm. And they were hatching this plan themselves. So I think, I think for Bellamy, there's what gets stripped away over the course of this episode is not just his ability to convince himself that he's doing the right thing by taking Cooper out and and not having to sort of confront the fact that it's solely about not wanting to kill Octavia. I think what gets stripped away is the realization that like there's literally no other way to stop this from happening. There is no combination of like double crosses or tricks or manipulations or workarounds or negotiations or whatever. There's nothing like Octavia wants to go to war and everyone who follows her will follow her. And there is nothing that he can do as long as she's in charge of anybody. If she has five people, she will march to war with five people. You know, like there's mm-hmm. nothing. It's non-negotiable. And I think that that. Octavia. Yeah. Octavia is the problem. Octavia is a problem and there is no way to kind of shave off an outer layer of the problem and resolve it that way. Like there's, there's zero other options. And I think that, so I think for me, it was like the way, the way that Clark being arrested factors into that is him looking at who, who they all used to be, you know, him, Clark, Octavia, Miller, and realizing that you know, that his sister is so unrecognizable that she's totally willing to kill Clark or only only not killing Bellamy because she's sort of like, you get a pass this time, you know, but mm-hmm. but not not considering mm-hmm. it, you know, and that Miller mm-hmm. is right there next to her being like, yup, you're both dead, you know. So that like, I think that lends into her thinking and her hold over all of these people as exemplified by her hold over Miller, um, mm-hmm. I think is, I think is when the light switch flips on that like, there isn't, there isn't a way to sort of do this piecemeal or do this halfway or do this kind of like indirectly and work around it. There is only mm-hmm. take Octavia out of commission. For as long as it takes. And, and I think he realizes too that he has to be the one to do it. Yes. Yes. Because he is the only one who still has enough of her trust that he can get close enough to her to do it. Yeah. The fact that Indra didn't know about the plan, I think, is a big light bulb moment for him. Yes. So he, she has to be taken down and he is the only one who can do it. Um, and, and like those are the two sort of enormous factors that go into it. And, and like I said, I think, I think he would have, I think he would have done it. You know, I think, I think he would have, have realized, okay, we got to take out Octavia if they had arrested, if Octavia had arrested Indra instead of Clark, if Clark was still free, you know, so, um, so that's the kind of like, all right, this is like the, the full picture of the, the sort of motivation and significance of this decision. But, that said, so like it's always, you know, it, it's always kind of important to think about like, all right, what is, what's the story that's being told? You know, like what's, and all, what's the actual, the sort of actual, like you were sort of saying, like shift in the character here. And I think we've laid that out about like, here are all the factors that went into this character realizing that this is the decision that sort of strategically had to be 
made. You know, but the other part of things, of, of course, like that, that really, you know, that really matters is how, how is, how is it being presented? How is it being framed? And that whole scene between Bellamy and Octavia at the end is framed as, like, as being about Clark. Like, Clark is so present in that decision that he makes um, that I think, like, like, this is why I think you know, like, it was so immediately, like, was like, oh my god, it was so, so readily read in through kind of, like, ship shipping lens, but also why I think, like, that is not accidental or, or shipper goggles. Like, I think that is actually, like, a, you know, part of the, the framing of that scene, because, you know, when, when Bellamy walks in, like, Having said all these things that that are definitely like a, a background to his motive, the thing that Bellamy says to Octavia when he walks in, when she's like, what do you want? Is he says, I can't let you kill Clark. Like that is absolutely a piece of his motive. Like, exactly, yeah. Like, you know, like, I know you kill a lot of people, but like one of the people that you absolutely cannot kill, that I will not let you kill, that like is one of my like, line in the sand people is Clark. Um, and then Octavia in that like beautiful moment of like perfect, perfect like blending of Bloodrena making a threat um, and little sister bratty jive. <laughs> um, <laughs> when she says, you know, like, so you come back in here to beg for the life of another traitor and then a big pause and she looks like, you know, she looks up at him, who you love. Who you love. Yep, yep. Who you love. (laughs) (laughs) That was like so perfectly delivered by Marie Avgaropoulos. Oh my God. Um, It's like a perfect blend of like, like I said, like Blood Reina, but like this is Blood Reina being like, ooh, you like a girl. (laughs) Can Um, I, um, can I, can I briefly interject to confess something that is so on brand that you will crack up laughing? So I, when she said that, so I, so I knew obviously I was like, okay, she's referring to Clark, but when she says another, I forgot, I feel, I feel so dumb. I forgot about Echo for a second and I was like, oh, he loves Kane. And then I was like, wait a minute. I was like, oh, that's so sweet. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, she means, she means his girlfriend who she banished, who is a traitor. There was a whole thing about it like a week ago, Claire. Oh, right. Okay, okay. (laughs) Proceed. Whoops. He has an actual girlfriend. That's who she meant. Right, right. Never mind. The parallels are super clear. It's a very well written line. I'm the only, although actually, I was not the only person. Brittany thought so too. So I was like, okay, good. But I <laughs> well, did for the same reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I went straight to so I was like, oh, this is so, I miss Aww. and then I was like, oh, Claire, calm down. <laughs> anyway. <Claire>. No. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Which is also like, hello, love triangle. Uh, <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, and of course, anytime a character in the show is like, you love this character, it's always you know, always, like, seems like a big deal. But, like, I have to say, like, the face journey 
that Bob took Bellamy on in his mm-hmm. reaction to that line was fucking magical. It's amazing. I like rewound and watched that face journey like 15 times. And it's so brilliant because he manages to convey like it is a journey. You know, like you can like watch like Bellamy go on this like roller coaster of emotions in the three seconds that he reacts to that comment. Like there's a kind of like, oh, shit. Oh, fuck. Well, yeah. Anyway, okay, now I'm terrified. You know, and I feel like it feels to me, and this is, like, totally just headcanon, um, unless, like, I, you know, whatever. Someday, if they ever release that... Well, no, they did release that script thing. So this is totally just... Uh, and, all, and all it says is he didn't take the bait. Like, it's all... It didn't really yeah, go yeah. into it. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, like, the way that I... It, it looked to me like... Like it was a it was a punch to the gut to Bellamy, you know. Like you could definitely mm-hmm. tell it was like, and it felt like to me that felt like a moment where of like Bellamy being like, but I, oh fuck, yep, I'm still in love with Clark. Well, mm-hmm. shit, <laughs> um, and and that she knows it, and that she yeah. has already determined that it's a thing. I mean, like what where I found it like foreboding, um, like if it, yeah. it, it rang to me like um like in Nevermore. When Raven, Ooh, yes, you know, like, like somebody, yeah. somebody looking at Clark and Bellamy and being like, I'm going to throw in your face the thing that neither of you are ready to say yet because it will completely like destabilize you. You know, like mm-hmm. it will, it will throw, like if we say the thing out loud, it will throw off everything and put you, and, and because both times, like both with Raven and Evermore, it was in the context of Gina. Um, uh-huh. and, you know, and here it's in the context of Echo. So both times it's like somebody pointing out, like, you know, your, like, your, your not, not, I mean, not even like, like he's cheating, but like, but like you're, there's something going on that you're not addressing and I'm going to, like put my finger right on the wound and make you really painful and uncomfortable by forcing you to look at this thing, which I am now calculating how I can use this as a weapon. And yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. so it felt like the same kind of like, you know, every like everything can proceed and they can do what they need to do as long as nobody says this thing out loud yet, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Bellamy was like, I was very carefully compartmentalizing those issues in my head. Thank you very much. But mm-hmm. like, thanks a lot for tearing down the wall and making me have to like, deal for a second with, <laughs> with the existence of this, uh, <laughs> this uh, internal conflict. Um, so yeah, so I, I did a lot of like squealing. About that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it does very much I mean, you know, obviously, it it sets up, I think, you know, in the next um in the next episode that that Bellamy is going to be scrambling to try to save Clark, you know, try to free her. Um and and also kind of like sets up that 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 this conflict, you know, that 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 Bellamy's Bellamy and Clark's feelings for each other and are sort of like rising to the surface and are becoming more and more textually an issue and and like what he's willing to do to save her um, and whether or not, you know, when and whether he's going to get back to Echo and how they deal with that. Like, I, fe- I feel like the, all of this is sort of like starting to come to a head. It had felt like to me like it was all kind of like, like that little 
that storyline was on pause, you know, it was kind of like spinning its wheels for a while. But this this feels like we're sort of pushing towards a confrontation of these sort of like points of tension, um, which I'm very excited about. I I've been like sort of chomping at the bit for some, you know, for some chippy angst for a while. <laughs> yeah. I just want them to yell their feelings at each other. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I, what I liked about, about the way it, I mean, it, it definitely felt like, you know, we've been, we've been talking for a while about like the way that they're sort of laying out a trail of breadcrumbs that feels like it's leading somewhere pretty definite. I, more so this season, I think, than, than in the past one. Um, but I, what I liked about sort of structurally how it fit in this what this way is that, you know, it, it, it gave us that like pretty textual, explicit, you know, moment of acknowledgement that there is something here that at least one other character is sort of directly overtly seeing and commentating on. Um, and they did it in a way. Well, and then that- and Dioza saying, Dioza also saying, you know, calling them, um, the hostage shaker and his girlfriend. So like there's, right. there's, it's been like sort of named a couple of times now. Yeah, but in but in this in this episode in particular, what I liked was was that moment being paralleled with like like Echo playing a really significant role in a totally different story as herself. So yeah. it feels it yes, feels like yes. they're they're mm-hmm. moving away from our our fears that Echo's role was going to be sort of an uncomfortably like love triangly thing, or or that she wasn't going to sort of get her due as a character. Um, you know, if if her relationship with him and 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 her sort of existence in the narrative was sort of like to serve a ship that would be like kind of really crappy. Um, and I, what I liked in this right. episode in particular was that we got, we got real movement towards, um, a, what it looks like a big part of the kind of the next phase of Echo's plot is going to be, um, along with a, amending of the fences between her and Raven. So she's kind of not like a strange yeah. on her own while we also got this sort of pretty, definitive step forward in the Clark and Bellamy relationship. Um, and, you know, it's like somebody, say, somebody saying it to Bellamy, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, so I like that. I, I feel like, um, I feel good about, I feel really good about how, how Echo's getting used in, in the storyline now. Like, and I, it made me feel like, okay, yeah. if we're going to kind of keep balancing out these sort of steps forward, in a way where it's also being paralleled with Echo playing a deeper and more substantive role full of like relationships and connections and real plot agency, you know, over here or somewhere else, then I feel like then they're, they're doing right by her, you know? Yeah. And I was going to say, and, and I, and it, you know, this, this sort of step forward for Belarica sort of comes on the heels of a couple of episodes that have been spent really, giving, you know, a good amount of time and focus and care to developing Echo's and and Raven's relationship entirely separate from independent of um, Bellamy, either Echo's relationship to Bellamy or Raven's, you know, so that these are two women who have a very close friendship who mean an incredible amount to each other, um, you know, and that and that and that echo and sort of echo echo is is facing her demons and sort of confronting like okay you know there's a version of her from that was in space and then there's a version of her from before and those two things are kind of crashing into each other and and the repercussions of her trying to figure out how to negotiate these these 
parts of herself um, are happening through her confronting, you know, like through her relationship with Raven is the person that she, that she's really like thinking about, like my actions have consequences for this person that I really care about for this relationship. That means a great deal to me, you know, so they're spending, I, I like that they're spending a lot of time kind of being like, you know, yeah, like, like this is being run through the lens of Echo and Raven's very close friendship rather than being run solely through the lens of Echo's relationship to Bellamy. So, so yeah, so I feel, I feel good about like, yeah, it's, it, it is a love triangle, but it isn't, it isn't like it's, it's a love triangle in that there are three people, um, in various sort of love relationships with each other potentially, but it's not a love triangle in the sense of like anyone being framed in any way as competing with each other. Yes. You know, it's just yeah. like conflicting which, feelings, which happen in the world. Yeah. So. Well, and, and, <laughs> and, and like little things like, which I, and I think I forgot to mention this last, episode but like when when they realize that like raven or that that echo managed to get the eye down and they're watching it and clark is like oh my god raven like echo did it and she's like so like like she's so like proud of echo she's like oh thank god you know yeah. like like she has a super yeah. positive yeah. reaction to like echo did the thing her like and and like little things like that where it's like a reminder that like clark and echo aren't perceiving each other's primary role into those lives as like a romantic rival in some like shitty teen movie way, like like continue to sort of like seed it with those little things. I think is like super important. Yeah. Yes, no, I agree. I agree. Doing a good job, guys. Yes. <laughs> um. Uh. 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 Can we talk about a little bit since we're on the that final scene, the Blake siblings ness? Yes, of it, I was going to say, do we do we want to think about some of it? Yes, let's let's do some let's unpack some Blake pain. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, what a heart wrenching so, scene! I cannot believe that they had Bellamy say over the teeth. Oh my god! I know. The gums. I was like, you <laughs> goober! What a yeah. fucking nerd! He's, oh my god! And like, and the, and the, her and her reaction to like it was her reaction was so fucking funny. <laughs> Because she's, she's like, she's in full blood arena and he's, you know, he's doing like, like, here comes the airplane, baby Octavia, you know? And she's like, are you and she's fucking like, kidding are me? Are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? I right will now? literally have you murdered. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> literally. Yeah, literally. Um, I also have to say, um, Oct- uh, Marie's face acting and particularly Marie's eyebrow acting was mm. next level like this the subtle you know because her face is always so um so much of her kind of blood rainer persona is about like keeping that face sort of largely expressionless you know like she's always kind of like stone cold glaring like the epitome of resting bitch face right but right, like right right but when those little flickers of something come through like when he says when he says to her like I want to let you know that I love you no matter what. And you, and she, and you see in her face, like, what the fuck did you do? You know, like, yeah, what, right, like, right, right. like, what did you do? You did something, you son of a bitch. And that, like, that snap, that, like, moment of realization, cause she's so quick. She's so smart. Um, like, I just watching, Mar- like, Marie's performance in this episode was, was so, 
Like she's just extraordinary. She's doing incredible work. Um, and and making an extremely heightened level of banana pants crazy feel organic and natural in in a way that's just I think is just masterful. But that scene, like there the the war going on in her face between anger and sadness and like the the yeah. devastation of betrayal was so from like, this person who I don't think she ever really believed mm-hmm. that he would betray her. Yeah, she, yeah. She kept warning him and warning him. And then, I mean, she really knew. She knew that he helped Clark and she still didn't really, yeah. you know, she still kind of refused to to see it as a betrayal. And then this happens and, and you can see just like the absolute sheer disbelief um, in, that, in that first moment of like, like, Big brother, you did this? Yeah. You know, like... Yeah. Yeah. Like, like her heart is broken. Like, she, she's also yeah. Yeah. so furious at him that she wants to rip off his face. But but she is like... Like, the look on her face as she sort of passes out, like, that's her... Like, she's just, like... She's just shattered by it. And, and in a way where, you know, I... And we talked about this before. Like, I, I still don't know. Like, I still haven't decided... Whether I think it's more likely or not that she's gonna that Octavia's gonna die this season, I go back and forth like every episode. Um, and but but I but if she doesn't, I mean, and, I mean, and if she did, does, she won't die now, you know. So like, if she it would yeah. happen in the finale, I'm sure. But um, but so so the the sort of the open question that this leaves us with of like, who is this woman gonna be? When she comes back to life again and confronts Bellamy, who did this to her, like, like is is the part that is the part that sort of lands, like the is the version of Octavia who's sort of who's driving the you know driving the ship when she comes back to herself, going to be the part of her that is like cold fury at like how dare you you know, circumvent my authority as Blarena, or is it going to be the part of her who is, you know, wounded and sad and like crushed by the fact that the one person that she trusted to protect her didn't protect her. And what that says about the way in which she, through her own actions, entirely undid the foundation of their relationship, you know, like that it's, That it's her choices, it's the person that she became that forced Bellamy to cross the one line that the entire foundational premise of who he was as a person indicated was the line he would never cross, you know, and that she did that. Um, so I, so I feel like there is, there is a possibility here for the thing that we sort of wanted and didn't get with the fake out death last season with Echo and the Cliff and Helios and Aragorn, um, where, (laughs) you know, where she, you know, where she sort of almost died and had this kind of like symbolic, you know, death rebirth thing and then ended up staying the same Octavia. So it was kind of like, I don't know why we went there, but this feels different. (laughs) Um, Yeah. This feels different. And, and I think it could, and I, the thing that I, the reason I feel like it's still kind of a toss up is because I think it could go either way. I think it could be that when she comes out of this, it's like the last piece of her, 
whatever was left of her Octavianness, of her humanity, has been gone. Like, is gone, has been completely shattered, and she is, like, all blood reina, down to the bone, completely unforgiving, unstoppable in her sort of, like, relentless desire for vengeance. And now that that desire for vengeance has expanded to make Bellamy and Clark, but largely Bellamy, as much her enemy as Dioza is. So I think that's one possibility for it. Mm-hmm, um, or mm-hmm. it could be the thing where she finally breaks, where like the walls start crumbling down and she comes out of it and she's just like shattered, you know? And yeah, and yeah. it's the beginning of finding a way to start over, you know? And, yeah. and I don't know. Like I have no idea yeah, where we're going. Yeah, no, me too. And me, I, I could see, I could see either one mm-hmm. as being equally likely. Um, but I mean, the the preview pictures we got for the next episode is it the next episode of the one after that. I think uh, of her like glowering down on the arena kind of makes me think it might be the latter, or yeah. no, the former, and not the latter. That she's gonna go. She's just gonna be like. That little teeny part of her that was still Octavia and, you know, for a moment was a little girl who flung herself into Bellamy's arms when he came down from the ceiling is gone. And she's just, yeah. But, but I don't know. And, and there's still, there's still Maddie to consider. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I don't know since, yeah, I don't, I just, I don't know. I, I could see it going either way and very, very curious to see what happens. Um... While we're doing face acting shout outs, I would like to also give a face acting shout out to Bob Morley for his face when he's holding his hand over oh, God. Octavia's mouth. Yes. Like, I mean, you can just see oh. both their hearts just absolutely breaking. Yeah. You know, as as this is happening. It's just, it just, sh- like, this is really a cataclysmic moment. Like, this is something that that shatters both of them, I think, at a really visceral level. Yeah. Like, all, like, whatever like how happens, does he come out of this? Like, how, does, exactly. how is like, he different yeah. now? Yeah. Exactly. I, th- I think this is like, this is something that, that has to fundamentally change Bellamy because this is something, he's doing something that he did not know or think he was capable of doing um, in the past. And so that just, that just changes the understanding of who you are or what, what you're able to do. Um, so yeah, so I'm really curious to see how that plays out for him um, going forward, but they both just knocked it out of the park. Oh my God. Yeah. So good. So good. And, and just like, you know, and again, I, I think similar to what we were talking about before with, um, you know, with, with Kane's speech to Dioza, you know, like this episode did such a good job in so many ways of um, really and actually, and, and I think this whole season's been doing it really beautifully of keeping with, without ever sort of getting like clunkily, um, you know, overly expositional, keeping every character's history with other characters right up at the forefront, you know, so, so the, so like with, um, you know, with, with Raven, for example, you know, which who we'll come back to in a minute because I have very strong feelings about that scene. But one of the things that I liked about it from Raven's perspective is we get not just the sort of history since the show started of the fact that she has this close relationship with Abby, but also the his the the even further back history that we never talk about of of her mother. 
And with the Blakes, we get, you know, again, not just the, like, since the show started history of, like, how it feels to Bellamy to have Miller be the person who's doing all of this, but also we go all the way back to when he was feeding Octavia when she was a baby, you know, and... Yeah, yeah. Um, when he sits down, he says, like, remember, I used to share... Yeah. Used to share our rations with you. So I feel like just that, um, you know, and, and then, you know, and for Kane with Gioza, like, again, like, he's, when he talks about staring into the abyss, like, he's not just talking about pike and he's not just talking about the culling he's talking about the entirety of his adult life in the leadership structure of the arc and the person that that made him you know so so everyone's like pre-series history is really alive in in this whole season but in in this episode particularly we touch on it from like a bunch of different angles in ways that i think are really um used really well i think to make big emotional moments land and yeah i think that for i agree i think that for bellamy the and, and i and i don't I'm, a, I'm sort of of two minds about this like he so i'm interested to hear what you think so like he i mean he definitely like he arrives in that room with like plan in place like with the with the dosed bar you know palmed in his hand um you know to sort of like knowing that like that she will trust him, knowing that he's the per- only person who can do this. But part of me wondered, you know, when when he does sort of go back to that, like, those sort of childhood memories, like, is there a part of him that is still hoping to get through? Like, is there a piece of him I think so. that's still I think trying so. to I think, see, think- like, is there any real Octavia left, you know? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a combination of yeah. things. I think it's, I think it's, a, I think it's a few things at once. I think... I think he's trying to disarm her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think he is. I think the knowledge of what he's about to do is making him think about about his relationship to her and about their past. So I think part of it is him, you know, because this is a little bit of a fer- farewell. Yeah, I yeah. Think he knows, and that's why he has to say, like, I, ho- you know, I just wanted to say I love you very much, no matter what happens, and I hope you believe me. He knows that. The likelihood is that she will, that this is the end of their relationship, that, that she won't forgive him. There's a very high likelihood of that. So I think part of it is nostalgia, you know, because, because he's saying goodbye on some level or or another, he's saying goodbye to her. I think he's saying goodbye to, I think he's saying goodbye to the little girl Octavia that he took care of because by doing this, in the act of doing this, he's admitting to himself that he has to let go of of that of, of the way that he's continued to see Octavia as that little girl. He has to. That's the that's the that's the Octavia he's been trying to protect. That's the image of her that I think arises in his mind when he thinks about her that has stood in the way of him being able to see Blood Raina as a problem. So I think there's a part of him that's that's saying goodbye to that. Um, but I also, I do agree with you. I think on another level, you know, in the act of trying to disarm her, I think he is trying to sort of probe for, are you still in there? Will you join me in this? If I, if I remind you, of what we once were to each other. Will that change things? Will you be able to see things differently? You know, if if I told you I can't let you kill Clark 
Um, you know, if I remind you that I was the one of, of the way that I took care of you, of, of who you were in the past, will that make that will, will that be the thing, be able to click you out of this sort of mode that you're in? I think it's all those things kind of at once. Yeah, um, I, I think so too. I think, cause there was a part of me that felt like, like I, like I knew, you know, when he says that and with that, with that sort of soft little, you know, brother smile, it's like, you, I knew that she wasn't going to be like, oh, I remember that too. Like, like you, like I knew she wasn't going to take that bait, but I wanted her to so badly. Like I wanted us to I know. see, like, and you, cause you feel how much he wants it, like that desperation of like, mm-hmm. are you yeah. like, like, will you, will you meet me here in this place? Can we just have a moment? And I don't know if she had shown that. Like, I mean, maybe it's good that she didn't because it would have just made everything harder for him because he still knows what he has to yeah. do. You know, it yeah, wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't change, it wouldn't change her enough to resolve the problem. It would just make it more painful for him to do what he would have to do in a minute. But you also, that he can't turn off that wanting. Like, he can't flip that switch where he's not continually like, trying until the absolute last possible minute trying to like find some way to get through to her. I do think that that the the sort of final moment of resolve the sort of thing that that is sort of uh, proves to him that she is too far gone is when she says say that you know Bloodrena says say the words and Bellamy says to Octavia over the teeth to pass the you know through the gums where he he's trying to sort of like shift the script. Like I'm going to say the words. You mean the Blake sibling words? You know the Blake kids mm-hmm. words that we used to say to each other when we ate. Like the are the Blake sibling that you know, like the Blake kids ritual that we had when we used to eat. And she says, "No, you have to say the blood rain ritual. You have to say the thing that sort of like commemorates and honors my power." And I think that is that is a very significant moment in sort of like. He's trying to be like, hey, kid sister. And she's like, I'm not kid sister. I'm Blood Reina. Right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's – and I do have to say another thing that I really liked that I thought was was very sort of chilling and effective um, and, and another resonance with that uh, Kane speech at the beginning where he talks about, you know, I know what it's like to to kill the, the few to save the many, you know, but eventually it becomes kill the many – to save the few um, in the context of an episode that is all about people shuffling around the, the one versus six, which one is going to get killed in order to save the many, which one is the thing, which one for the all um, having that repetition, that last scene and all those different ways of a moan going to one, the one of one of us for all of us is really, really chilling and effective because what it means because of the, like just the sheer depth of irony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when 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 Octavia says it, I mean like on multiple layers because there's the there's the there's what that phrase meant I think when it was first coined, which is about like we sacrifice one of us for all of us. You know, in the arena we sacrifice one of us for the good of all of us. Um, you know, as individuals we sacri- we make individual sacrifices for all of us. Versus when it's become when the the leadership is sitting around passing around the the you know the rations talking about all right, we're going to kill these people and then whatever. You know, when it's when it's sort of been like when it's become a ritualistic thing that really commemorates 
um, that, that really is sort of like consolidates power in Blood Raina and her people close to her, you know? So there's like, there's what it originally meant to Bunker Crew, to one crew. And then there's what it's come to mean sort of like as an emblem of Blood Raina, which is why she's trying to make Bellamy say it as a kind of like, I think, I think for her, she's, it's a, you know, for her, she's like, you know, like say the thing that pledges allegiance to me. Yes, exactly. And yeah. then, yeah, so that's what it means to her when she's saying, say it, say it, say it. But when Bellamy says, you know, among Gonasson before he takes that bite and knows that he's going to give her the dosed bar, what he says, the one for the many, what he intends by those words is completely different. So just like what he means is, I will sacrifice the one, a.k.a. you, Octavia, for the many, a.k.a. everyone else, you know. So just like the sheer depth of dramatic irony in that exchange was just like, like I got goosebumps. Oh my God. Well, and yeah. (laughs) And then, and then like you said before, like the way, like the way Omen Gonosan is kind of like the, the theme of the whole episode in a whole bunch of different ways involving, I think nearly every single character in some, like, I mean, even like, even Murphy and Amori in the switch for McCreary, it's like, like every, Every storyline in some way involves this, this calculation of which life or lives do we determine as being worth trading for other lives, you know? And, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. who hits a point where they realize we don't do that anymore? And who is like, no, that's still the only way that we have to survive. And, and all of the sort of, you know, complexities and, and ambiguities of, you know, of what those calculations look like, it, it feels like that's like you, like you said at the beginning, like that's really the kind of, that's the thematic statement of like, of the whole episode, but framing it in, in this way of this sort of like, um, the ritual, the sort of the, it's, it's the way that you kind of like declare fealty to Blood Raina and Bellamy takes that and sort of flips it on its head. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought that was really, um, the whole scene was just so, uh, 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 I mean, the, the, when they're sitting around the table, like sort of, you know, take a bite, like say the word, take a bite, pass it on, like just the sort of the way there was something, there's something in the way that that ritual sort of plays out of how kind of, um, how rote it is that I found really haunting, like the sort of the, the way that, it sort of effortlessly shorthands the the fact that this is something that they've been doing for years. You know, like like the way that the like the way that you sort of like like if you're a religious person and you have like prayers or whatever things that you just sort of like say off the cuff without thinking about it. That's how they say it. You know, like where it's just like it's like just you like say in your bones and, and also now. with you if you're like at a exactly Catholic yeah 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 service, yeah. Like, yeah you don't think about what that means. You're just like and also with you. You know, it's right? Kind They're of just like. like they're just the words. They're just like this who I is who we are, you know, and and they they're they're part of you so deeply that you're not thinking about them as words because what they've become is like an identity marker. You know. Yeah. And oh, another thing that's really interesting and from that kind of like ceremonial aspect, I think, um so the when they're when they're looking at that map drawn on the table, there's a couple of moments. So um when Cooper's pointing out, we're going to, you know, we're going to release the worms here, here, and here. She ends on the church. Mm-hmm. And we get, like, a shot of the church drawing on the table that fades into the church 
um, at the actual church in, uh, in Eden. And, um, so I'm, I'm very interested. I don't know quite what to do with that right now, but I think it's very interesting that they keep returning. They keep showing the cross, right? Like they keep returning to reminding us like this space is a church. Um, and then also I think it's interesting that, that kind of like that ceremonial sharing, breaking of, of bread, of rations, um, saying the words sort of moment among the, the one crew leadership and that final scene, we get, um, the first shot is that top down shot. We're looking down at the table. And so they're sitting around. And it's really interesting because like that table, it's like in this moment while they're having that we're doing this ritual is kind of like their altar, but it's also the table on which their war plans are drawn. Um, and you can see like the tray of food is sitting on top of the drawing of the village, but the, the church, the drawing of the church is still visible. Um, so I think there's a really interesting way where they're sort of layering like ritual and religion and, and the kind of like perversion of religion that one crew represents right now. Um, that their, that their altar is literally like, an altar to death in some ways. It's an altar to war. Um, and the way that, that there's sort of like the, the ritualism of the, the arena has been kind of warped and perverted. And I think when Gaia returns in the next episode, I'm very interested to see how, how and if those religious yeah. themes get picked up in, in looking at the way that Gaia kind of, ha, ha, you know, we know that she's held onto the flame and we know that she's held on to her old beliefs. The way that kind of like, and we know there's a confrontation with, with, um, Indra coming. The way that, that Gaia might kind of loop into this sort of like thematic return and, and sort of reminding us of like part of what's happening here is that there are beliefs that were important, um, that meant something in the past that have been twisted to serve new purposes. Um, and how do we, how do the people who still like sincerely carry those beliefs reconcile with that? So I'm really interested to see how those kinds of those themes kind of get picked up and, and developed going forward. Um, so, okay. So um, I have to be done in um, 50 minutes or about little, about an hour, a little bit less. So um, real quick memory. Yes. Um, I, Loved this Memore stuff as dark as it was. It was great. Like, I, yeah, no, I agree. I, um, I, first of all, I think that we're, you know, we're getting at the little, the little bits that, that were hinted at when we talked to Richard about Murphy seeing McCreary as like a sort of, slightly altered version of himself, but finding, you know, which, which we see in this episode, like that he, he is more aligned in terms of the way he thinks and plans with McCreary than he is with Amori. Like he hatches a plan with McCreary oh, yeah. that leaves Amori out. So that, so sort of making that parallel between them more textual in a way that I think is going to lead to um, some interesting shit once they're all, you know, back in the same place. And, and the, oh God, like the, the McCreary Dioza fade out standoff moment. Holy like, shit. Oh this my God. is gonna be dope. I'm so excited <laughs> for everything to go all to shit in the Allegius camp in the next episode with McCreary's faction versus Dioza's faction because like that, like bringing that simmering tension to the surface and like, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Dioza's look when she oh, heard that McCreary was back 
Oh my god. Like yes. her face was like watching her dreams die. Yes, yes. You know, yes. She's like, I have all this hope. Like, I talked to Kane, we're gonna build a village. Abby found a cure. Oh, mm-hmm. and it's all over now yeah. because that motherfucker is back. Yes. Well, and it and it does this really nifty thing that I really loved where which when we talked about this last episode too, like like both um both for you know, on the Allegis side and on the one crew side, we've now identified that the the thing blocking our ability to get to peace isn't institutional, it's individual. It's two people. Yes. It's Octavia yes. on one side and McCreary on the other side as individuals plus whoever they can get to follow them. So we mm-hmm. have, like, the fomenting of two, like – fringe factions of whom a great deal of other much more sane people who just want to live could be peeled away. But we have these two people who are leaders on each side with people who will follow them blindly no matter what, who want war because they want war. Not because, not the way that Dioza thought that she wanted it, which is like, I don't want war, but I perceive it as a necessary step to get the thing that I do want. And that's the thing that Kane yes. tells her basically like, that's bullshit. And that Monty tells Clark and Bellamy like, that's bullshit. You know, like, like, if yeah. that, that still means that you want war. It's evil to get to, yeah, if it's a necessary evil to get to peace and Kane and Monty are the ones who are like is it though is it yeah. really or yeah I'm telling yourself that right like I don't <laughs> I don't grant the premise that it is necessary at all and if you think that it is and you have to acknowledge like you're still choosing war even though you're choosing it for what you think of are superior reasons but the two people who actually do want it because they like conflict and they need conflict in order to you know cement their hold over their people in order to have power you know like it comes from different places like they're not the same person but they have parallel motivations in that um you know mccreary is addicted to chaos and octavia is addicted to power and both Mm -hmm. of those things are going to thrust them into you know a position where they're Groups are fracturing. They're already sort of losing their hold. Um, you mm-hmm. know, Octavia was betrayed by Bellamy and McCreary was betrayed by Dioza. You know, the one person mm-hmm. that they thought that they could trust would like, would have their back, you know, that like threw them both under the bus, you know, so, so the parallels between, between the two, between our two crazies, um, you know, ramped up in some ways I think were really interesting. So, so mostly in terms of, I mean, that, that plot, the McCreary stuff, I, I feel like is largely table setting for an impending explosion. But in terms of how it impacted Murphy and Amori's relationship, I, you know, it felt, um, it felt like satisfying to me on this like primal level. To hear Amori articulate, this is the problem in our relationship. The problem in our relationship yes, me too. is that, like, I find you so hot and sexy when you're being this fucked up, like, battle fighter, whatever version of yourself. And I'm acknowledging now that that's an unhealthy impulse in me. And I don't mm-hmm. want to be that person. So I'm drawing the line now because, like, you know, like, I think, I, I find you super sexy when you're, like, in this mode, but also, like, I know you well enough to know after six years that the second this is over and it's peacetime again, you're going to become the same fucking asshole that you were on the Ark for six years because you can't handle 
peacetime. You can't handle not having an enemy, you know? Um, yeah. And, exactly. and yeah. I loved, I loved getting to hear her say that, to hear that articulated both about like as a sort of, as a statement about who Murphy is as a person, which is entirely correct. And also as a statement of how far she's come in her own kind of self-knowledge that she can name that impulse in herself and be like, I don't want to be that person anymore. Like you can be who I you're going to really be. I just really love, I just really love watching characters articulate healthy boundaries. I really do. And yes. It's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> it was wonderful. Oh my God. Like, like you know, yeah. we talk about, we talk about like, okay, you know, we talk about like the sort of, uh, implications of what kinds of behavior TV shows are modeling for their audiences. And this is something where I was like, hooray, that was a perfect way to model how to articulate, you know, what your healthy boundaries and what your sort of personal, um, uh, like lines you need to draw to stay happy and healthy are good job, yes. Corey. <laughs> yes. Well, because it, because it like, it touches on this whole, you know, this sort of, this whole sort of cultural myth that we have about like the bad boys being sexy, you know, like it, yeah, right, it really right. explodes that, like where, right. like where what we're hearing her say is like, like yes, like, like he is sexy, like this is the version of him that she fell in love with, that she finds incredibly attractive, that she wants to like throw him up against a tree and like bone him right here in the woods, but that's not healthy or good for her. Like Murphy gets what he wants out of that, or sustainable, yeah, yeah. because yeah. because you can't live forever in the woods running from an enemy. Like you can't, like no one exists permanently in that space. At a certain point, you have to, you know, things calm down. It's peacetime. You have to figure out, you know, who's walking the dog and doing the laundry, and the sort of like day to day calibrations of how you make a functional relationship work. Like, this version of Murphy is not capable of any of those things. Yes, exactly. And and um, and I also really like to kind of, I think it touches a little bit on the, the sort of uh, theme in this episode we were talking about earlier about the kind of, like, ways that the potential of things and people and sort of forces to be both destructive and good is that, like, she she's kind of acknowledging, like, that's true of Murphy, too. Yes. It's like... There's this, you have this thing inside you, you know, and, and, and Richard's called it this like poison inside. He has, he, you have this sort of like, this like power and this, this, this aspect of yourself inside you that in this moment, in this context is incredible and powerful and attractive and charismatic and sexy and, and transformative and can like, and can, and can find ways to save our friends that might not have been other, otherwise possible. But put it in a different context, that force for good becomes becomes toxic. It becomes something that is destructive to yourself and everyone around you. And and that both of those things are true. You know, like it, neither one of those those aspects of John Murphy as the person are less true than the other. But there's always that potential. And there's and interestingly, I think like you know, McCreary is something is another example of that too. Where like McCreary is like McCreary is a problem until he's the solution. You know, um, McCreary is a threat until he becomes, you know, the 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 thing that's going to save them. Or, or really, like they try to use him as a tool to save Raven one way, and they figure out like, all right, he's still a tool to save Raven, just in a little bit of a different way. You know, so there's a kind of like McCreary has has these different potentialities as well. Um, it just kind of depends on how 
how you leverage those um, and what context. In this context for them, you know, Mercury is the good guy, but but for how long, you know, um, and to what at what cost? Right, um, right. So I thought that, yeah, yeah, like those, those are really great scenes. And they kind of like, they hook in very interestingly to some other sort of issues, um, in the rest of the episode. Yeah. And it, and it sets up, um, you know, it, it, it exists it largely, I think, in, you know, in this episode, it, it sets up future things. Like it sort of, it sort of draws some lines and says kind of like, okay, here's where everybody is now. And here's how that could, shake things up later, you know, I, I definitely think that one, um, one thing that we're sort of maybe moving the chess pieces around for is, you know, I, I imagine that whatever happens, you know, in the Allegis camp, when they sort of get there, that Amori is going to be with Raven and Echo, you know, like, I think they're pretty solidly established, like, as a unit, I think Amori will go wherever Raven goes. Um, and I think that where Murphy lands could potentially be more ambiguous, you know, I mean, I think, um, I think a, a rift between, and we're already sort of seeing it happen with the prisoners whose story we've been following, um, you know, Kane and Abby and Raven and Echo are not on the same side here. Um, and like the, so I think the prisoners choosing sides or ending up on opposite sides of this McCreary Dioza rift, you know, I think could be really, could be really interesting. Like I could, I could see a version of, you know, Raven Echo Amore deciding to kind of, you know, like if McCreary sows chaos and knocks Dioza out of leadership, do they feel like that ultimately serves their end goal of weakening this enemy? You know, whereas mm. whereas yeah. Abby mm-hmm. and Kane have a lot invested, like a lot invested in Dioza remaining the person who is in charge and McCreary being As- the threat that's neutralized. As do uh, um, Bellamy and Clark have a lot invested yes. in Dioza remaining in power too. Yeah. So, so there's also a kind of... Sp- a, a little bit of a space crew split there happening as well. Um, I will say we do have, there's that one BTS picture that they released a long time ago of um, Raven, Echo, Imori, and Murphy all like standing in like a, a ditch. In the snow, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do know that they might have together at some point. But yeah, I think there's, there are some interesting like allegiances kind of sort of, developing in different ways as these people are kind of isolated from each other and have access to different kinds of information um that um that will be very startling you know when like when clark shows up with maddie and maybe bellamy maybe not you know as we've seen those pictures are in their woods like when when they show back up to eden and are like all right cool here's our buddy Dioza, let's go. And Raven and Echo are like, uh, say what now? Right. The- <laughs> Excuse you? <laughs> the enemy? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that'll be really interesting. Uh, okay, are you are you emotionally prepared to talk about Abby? I'm ready. And Raven? Yes, I am ready. ready. Okay. Okay, so... So ba- okay, so here's so here's my here's my backstory on, on this story. So, um, so I... This is the first episode since we have started doing this podcast that I did not watch the night that it aired. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I heard about it. I heard about the Abby Raven storyline and I was also just sort of like, 
physically and emotionally exhausted and I ended up like falling asleep that night at like 9.15 anyway. So I watched it after (laughs) having like, you know, like knowing about this storyline, having talked to a bunch of people that had a bunch of different opinions about it, reading a couple of reviews of it, reading the script to screen. So, so my, so my experience watching this scene was very different. Like I, I normally sort of watch things pretty blank and then I kind of decide how I think about them. And this, I, which I think in the long run was helpful. Like I, I had a lot of time to sort of think about it. And then I, from a lot of different perspectives and then I watched it and then I slept on it and I watched it again. Um, so, so I feel like, you know, the, and the reason for that, like the reason, the place where I was sort of where I've been struggling is trying to kind of parse out, like we always do, you know, where are the places where, um, I'm like my sort of, you know, feelings about characters or feelings about ships or feelings about who's your favorite and whatever, um, where those things kind of clash up against or intersect with how I feel about story as story. So I say that to basically say that, like, like as a person who is, like, a huge, like, ride-or-die fan of Abby, I've given this enough thought to feel like, like, what I'm about to say is how I feel about this story as story. Um, like, divorced as much as possible from how difficult it is to watch this happened to one of my favorite relationships in the show. So that being said, um, my feelings about it are, are really mixed. They are neither wholly positive nor negative. Um, my biggest concern with this, with the scene in this episode and, and, or this kind of the storyline for Abby in this episode and, and in terms of where, I fear that it could be going and kind of picking up on uh, on some things that have been happening on a smaller level that kind of blew up here is like Abby's addiction storyline, particularly lately, sort of since they've landed in um, in Eden, has done some fantastic and significant kind of growth and character work for everybody else. So, so Abby's like Abby's addiction storyline in terms of how it has transformed the actual like shape of the story. Like it is, it is the thing that gets Kane almost executed, which gets them hooked up with Allegis, which gets them to Eden, which positions Kane to be in a position to be advocating for peace. So it's moved the chess pieces around in a big way. It has also opened up a bunch of like emotional growth for. Kane given us a really deep look into who he is. And in this episode, what we saw is how it did a bunch of like big, substantial, really important character movement work for Raven. The piece that I feel like I'm missing and where I'm really frustrated is that, um, Abby has had no chance really to articulate anything about like, what it's like to be Abby, other than I think them relying really heavily on Paige's like extremely expressive face. Um, but like in scenes, like so in scenes that are about Abby as a doctor, um, where where she's versions of her old self. Um, you know, she's she's active, she participates, she's got she's got great dialogue, she's you know, she's she's doing a lot. Like the, the doctor scenes, I think, work really well. Um, in scenes that are about Abby's addiction, 
like both with Raven and with Kane, she gets almost nothing to say. It's always some kind of variant of like, I can explain, I can explain. And the other person kind of cuts her off. So like, like what I wanted, what I wanted from Abby and Raven is a place for them to connect, no matter how angry, like, you know, angry and, and, and traumatized Raven is, you know, by, by this thing that happened, um, which I totally get and which I think makes perfect sense for Raven and it does great work for Raven. Um, I wanted, I wanted there to be some realization on Raven's part and some ability for Abby to articulate what it feels like to be Abby Griffin right now. And the thing that kind of pissed me off about it was like, they started to like the moment, the moment that I wanted to, them to let breathe a little bit longer is like, she has a moment where she says like, like, do you remember the pain after the city of light? And I was like, Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so we're going to get it. So we're going to get like, Abby's going to say out loud to somebody. She's going to like explain to somebody how she feels right now. And that doesn't justify the things that she's like, she's, she's doing bad things. Like she's, that's, that's non-negotiable, you know, but so it isn't like being an addict, like morally justifies, like having done, you know, like an addiction causing you to do bad things. Like, I don't think that it's excusing it. Um, but I wanted us to be able to hear what this is like from her perspective. And it feels like she, her voice in it feels like it's kind of being silenced in favor of, you know, us seeing the story from everyone else's point of view. Like with Kane, Abby's addiction scenes begin and end as Kane enters and leaves rooms. Like it's his yeah. point of view, you know? And in yeah. this one, we got the same thing with Raven. Scenes begin and end around Abby's addiction from Raven entering and exiting the moments. Um, and to me, what that means is we are meant to look at Abby's addiction in this storyline primarily as a lens to do a couple things, to circle us back to Raven's mom backstory, which we don't ever really, you know, hear or talk about, um, in a way that creates an emotional bond and connection with Shaw in a way that she's never gotten to have before, where he's kind of seeing a version of Raven that she doesn't show people. Um, and, but also creates this sort of new sense in Raven of that, like, Dioza is the enemy, Dioza is the villain, Dioza is doing terrible things to good people, we gotta take her out, even if that means killing Shaw, like, Dioza has to go, because of her perception of what Dioza has done to Abby. So, so for Raven, for moving Raven's arc forward, it's works beautifully. It, like it really, really does. Um, and yeah. I think it's, and I think and it's. And then also moving the larger plot between also the, uh, Raven Echo plot. Yes, and exactly. Relationship yeah. As well, because that's a motivator for a Raven coming back and being like, okay, we gotta kill Shaw. Yeah. You know, like it's a whole, it, it does, it's, it's, it beautifully shifts that whole dynamic yes. around. Yeah. But, it does a ton of work. But that's a dynamic that's about those three characters and not about And Abby. not about Abby. And, and I feel like, um, and I also, and I also feel like, so I think, I think part of, I think part of what got under my skin about it, like the more I've sort of thought about it is that I actually feel like, um, a lot of what I, what really got under my skin about the way the scene played out 
very small fixes could have changed it. So I think, I think yeah. any, I think any moment, and it's like, she's like, Abby sort of starts to do it with the city of light, but like, the thing about Abby and Raven and their relationship, one of the things that I really love about it is how like, like with the exception of Raven's leg, of, of her like, you know, of her significant injury, um, she and Abby have this journey that is kind of like astonishing in the parallels of sort of where their scars are. You know, I mean, like very specific ways from like wearing a thing around your neck that symbolizes your dead lover to scars on your lower back to they were both drilled in Mount Weather. They were both pulled out of the city of light by the same machine and had seizures. Like it's the same. They're the same in so many ways. And, um, and what I found really, um, kind of awful in how the, and I, I think, and I think the way it, but why it bugged me was I felt like there was moments where I was like, this feels like not just angry Raven saying things. It feels like the narrative saying this. It feels like the narrative wants us to think that one, um, that everything about what Abby is doing is sort of inherently secretive and shady. I don't quite understand why she didn't tell Raven, like, yeah, Dioza is going to kill me and Kane if I don't find this cure. Like, that's the truth. It's super valid, but it makes like, it's framed in this, what kind of felt like a retcon. Like, she doesn't go with Allegis because she wants pills. She goes with Allegis like, before Dioza even knows she's addicted, to get Kane out of Polis so Octavia doesn't kill them both because they're traitors now. Like, that's why she leaves. Yeah. And, yeah. and it felt and she, like and she this does episode... And what Dioza says when she got there, because mm-hmm. if she didn't, Dioza would kill her and Kane. So, right, right. So, so, like, so the truth... Yeah. Yeah, like, the... the so, if, so, but it felt like this episode, especially with the scene at the end with Dioza, like, it felt like this episode retconned it as though all along, Abby's plan had been like, oh, this is where I can get more drugs. I'm going to go with this lady. And that felt like, okay, whoa, that's, if that's how you want us to see it, that's a new piece of information that doesn't match anything that happened in 504. So that was one thing where, again, it felt like, I feel like the narrative is like they're framing, you know, like, she's hugging Raven, but the shots on her face and she looks kind of shifty. And I'm like, so are we supposed to believe that, that now, now you're telling us that this is why Abby did everything that Abby did. Like it's certainly a factor of why she's doing it now. I will say I, I, you know, all three times, but certainly the first time I watched it and then the subsequent times too. um, It didn't read that way to me. Okay. Like, I think I, 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 it didn't, it didn't, I mean, like, the, the sort of, obviously the, the framing wound up being, um, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to articulate this. It didn't read that, to, that way to me because I think the, the scene at the end where Raven finds the pills and sort of, like, flips out on Abby and and says is this why you were doing it you know is she is she supplying you with pills i i didn't feel like as if when i was watching that i didn't feel like i was supposed to like raven was speaking the narrative truth um it felt like she's she's raven is having an understandable reaction because she doesn't because 
Abby did mislead her and Raven right. doesn't know the rest of the story. And Raven is kind of like having a very emotional reaction to what she's discovered and won't let Abby respond. And Abby is too sort of, right. Abby is too sort of like shattered by Raven making this discovery to be able to articulate. I mean, like, and also Abby is just sort of like shattered by guilt by the whole thing, you know? So I think right. it felt like to me for Abby that like it wasn't, she didn't feel like she could even justify it because she felt so terrible. So like, so I definitely, yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally, I never got the sense that like, I never got the sense that it was a retcon. It, like I was a little bit sort of like, there are other, there are other truths there that Raven doesn't know and that right. Abby doesn't get to say. And like, and that is a little, it's annoying that, that sort of, like you said, that kind of reinforces the way in which um, the the scenes about Abby's addiction always wind up centering on other people's feelings about her addiction instead of on her experience of her addiction. Right. But, um, but I, I, I don't, to me, I don't think that that was in any way meant to be like, like, we're, I don't think the audience is in any way, like it did not, to me as a watcher, I did not feel in any way like the narrative was telling me like, Abby's only been doing this for pills all along, you know, like, I don't, okay. I don't well, think I mean, that that was the, the case. That's, I, I, that's good to know. I mean, I, I, to me, I think it, it felt like, I think the, the juxtaposition of like, um, like a raven saying, wait, oh my God. So you were only doing this because she wouldn't, so she wouldn't cut you off. And, and Abby kind of conceding that point felt like that was being sort of presented as like, Raven has has correctly identified and is calling her out on a real thing. And Abby's sense of shame is sort of keeping her from being able to kind of fight that back. I also think, I think part of why it felt like what kind of contextualized it a little bit weirdly for me was when it's then followed up by, you know, that sort of that, that scene that she has with Shaw, um, where, you know, where she says like, have you know, have you ever loved somebody so much that like, whatever like whatever they do to you you know however bad it is like you, you love them so much that you just take it um and he of course like he clocks immediately she's talking about a parent but like again like there's the parallels there like it's it's what happened with abby that pings that mom trigger and so just like my sense of discomfort at paralleling a like abusive alcoholic mom who did deeply traumatic things to Raven, like paralleling that with what Abby just did makes it like, it, it made me feel like I think uncomfortable with a lot of the pieces of this that felt like we're, we're framing Abby as being Similar to Raven's mother in the lying, in the causing her physical pain in ways that made me feel really uncomfortable because it felt like this was the place where I felt like the show, the one place in this episode where it felt like they forgot somebody's history, where they forgot like the, the depth of the connection between Abby and Raven in that like they have all these shared experiences of pain and that Raven understands like Raven herself has made the choice to, you know, like when she took the chip, like in like hiding from like wanting to escape from pain, like this is a thing that she gets. And 
you know, and Abby took the chip for Raven. And like, and so like, so I felt like there's all these sort of moments where, you know, like what I, what I wanted to happen when these two characters sort of finally came together, you know, even knowing that like Raven would be super upset would be to have, to have some kind of a touch point that reminds us that this is a, this connects to some shared experiences that they have. And instead I feel like, you know, Abby trying to explain, like Abby trying to sort of say, like, like, do you remember in the city of light? Like, let me, let me try to explain to you what my experience is like. And Raven's response being, you know, don't you talk to me about pain? To me, I think like that felt like our, our, are we saying like, not just, and again, not just angry Raven, but the narrative that like Abby's pain is like Abby's pain doesn't count because it's less than Raven's pain. And the idea of suffering and torture and physical pain is something over which Raven, like that's kind of her territory, you know? And, and for Raven, the person in that moment, I think that's a logical emotional reaction. But again, I felt like lined up with some of these other things that just sort of rang weirdly and how isolated Abby is in her own story. Like I, I don't know what I was, I don't know what I was supposed to think was happening there, but what I, what I felt like was, you know, was that the pieces were sort of lining up to frame it. Like Abby is, you know, a shifty, abusive person whose relationship causes Raven deep pain. And at the exclusion of sort of remembering all of the other, like, the places where their experiences are similar. And then, and the other place where I feel like a really small fix would have changed it a lot. Like, so, so the shock collar thing, which is, which is a horrifying moment. I mean, like, just, there's no, like, there's, there's no other way, like, there's no justifying it. Like, it's, it's awful. It's totally awful. It's so hard to watch. Um, I feel like, the the idea of you know like raven raven goes to grab the thing to smash the machine and abby shocks her shock collar to stop her i feel like if it had just been like a like a panic blip like she grabs the thing pushes the button shocks raven and then we cut back to abby being like what the fuck did i just do you know that's one thing but we linger on it she keeps doing it she stands there holding that button and she's crying like she's totally devastated you know like and and Paige sells it but like she she tortures raven for a long time you know longer than it feels necessary to get across the point that like this is how far gone Abby is. This is how much her actions are being driven by her addiction, that she's willing to hurt somebody that she really cares about. Um, it, it felt to me like, um, a sort of a snap moment of like, like a reflex that like an addiction driven sort of reflexive moment where she does this to stop Raven from destroying the machine feels very different from like lingering in this sort of sustained, thing like it's just that and it also yeah i mean go ahead i i agree with you i was i mean like on rewatching it i i because you had mentioned that to me yesterday i think when i was rewatching i thought about i and i agree with you about i think the sort of duration of the shocking 
seem to me to be driven primarily by how long it took the camera to pan from Raven up Abby's body to her face. So that was a decision, I think, that seemed to be, seemed to have been made around a kind of like issue of here's how we want to, here's how we want to do this shot and here's how long the shot takes. And therefore that's how long the shocking will go on. Um, rather than from the perspective of what exactly would Abby the character be doing in this moment. And I think the, the, the motivation of Abby shocking her is like very clearly like just a, just a reaction. Like I have to stop her, right. you know, but so there's a disconnect between what's sort of in, in the story happening, which is that little sort of like you said, sort of like blip, like kind of moment versus this is how long it takes the camera to go from this point panning up to this point. So I think it's one of those things that was like, it was a, it was a choice that was made more about, um, like craft, you know, it was a sort of like a technical choice rather right. than a care over a character choice. And perhaps they didn't really didn't consider that the duration of the shock matching the duration of the shot also changed the implications of the shock right. itself and right. made it, it seem a lot worse than yeah um, like it like, makes it like seem every like it went on it made it worse and Abby's worse. torturing yeah. her yeah 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 so I so I think that was just like maybe I, I think that was that was a sort of like uh, a choice that was made in to sort of and it was an act break right you know like we're going to commercial it's a big dramatic moment and they sort of favored like draw out the big dramatic moment over without without so much considering like but if we do that, it looks like Abby's like really just standing there over her, torturing her, which is I don't think what they meant to do. So that's one of those things where I'm like, if I had a note about like how your sort of your sort of um, uh, formal choice affected the story, that would be my note. Um, but f- the other stuff, I think it's it's okay. Here's the interesting thing for me: um, when I watched that scene. <sighs> I guess, and I, and I, and I know that I think my, my reaction is minority reaction, even among like, like everyone, you know, like most of my friends that I've talked to and people in the fandom, then even like another friend of mine who, um, who isn't like in fandom at all. He's just a friend of mine who watches the show who texted me when he was watching like something like, oh my God, what the hell, Abby, or something like that. You know, so I, and I think because for all those reasons, I think, I think the two reasons that drive the reaction to that, to what Abby does being so like, oh my God, like what the fuck, you know, that was, that was a horrible thing to do. Abby, our combination of one, what you pointed out about all the ways that that scene is framed around is, is sort of framed around Raven's emotional reaction to Abby so that the audience is sort of like being primed to identify more with Raven's emotions and with Abby's. Um, and then to the duration of the shock. Um, but interestingly, when I watched, I guess it never occurred to me, um, that the narrative might be suggesting that, that Abby is like mean or evil or abusive or, or anything like that. I, I just like, it never read to me that way because I, I don't know when I was watching, I just felt so much empathy for like, for both of them. Like to me, that was just a scene of watching Two people 
two really traumatized people in the grip of their trauma, tragically unable because of their trauma to be able to see or hear each other. Like Raven can't, Raven can't hear Abby. She can't because like, because seeing Abby passed out on the couch like Raven is just she's in her I mean I to me I'm just sort of like I was immediately like like she's she's in the grip of a PTSD flashback. You know like Raven right now is emotionally the little girl that she was when she used to come home and find her mom passed out and have nothing to you know to eat and and have found that her mom bartered all of their rations for alcohol and she's alone and terrified and she has to go find Finn and ask for food. You know like that's that's where Raven is in that moment. Um, and what, and what to me, so, so to me, it seemed always very clear that what Raven was screaming at Abby wasn't about Abby. It was about her mom. Right. Like what Raven is saying, Raven is not, is not anything about Abby. It's about like, it's about Raven being thrown back into that experience, which again, like you pointed out, what that means is that the point of that scene is, is more for Raven's character development than necessarily for Abby's, which is its own problem. But like, but it didn't, as a consequence, it doesn't seem to me, because it's about Raven and not about Abby, I don't feel like what Raven is going through necessarily directly is meant to tell us anything about Abby. Um, but at the same time, like, I felt, you know, like, like Abby is trapped in, She's trapped in her cycle of sort of trauma and and pain and addiction where she's just sort of desperately scrambling around and there's there's nothing she's not like it's not like she's in total control over what she's doing you know like she can't she can't say out loud to Raven like to me it just seemed very clear that like Abby wasn't lying to Raven because she was evil or cruel or manipulative or whatever she was it was more like she because of her relationship to raven she couldn't bear to look her in the eyes and say this is who i am now and it was so painful for her to hear raven say to her everything that she feared most about herself that she just she was just devastated you know like in that moment there are those are two broken people who who just can't get out of their brokenness and and anytime that happens the result is devastating you know so i don't know and and i acknowledge that like that that's not how most people react was you know felt about that scene and and there are still like sort of all kinds of ways that that um the framing of that sort of sequence is does you know does not serve abby well and does not does not sort of we're still not sort of approaching this scene from the perspective of abby's experience of her addiction so that's in itself a problem but i guess to anyone to anyone who is who feels like that scene in some way makes Abby out to be to be the abusive person that that Raven's mother was intentionally or unintentionally to Raven um 
whether whether that's you know from your side where like you're a fan you love abby and it's painful to you to like see your care to feel like your character is being portrayed that way or on the other side from somebody who's really angry at abby or, or hates her or whatever and is like well see she's horrible i would just say i would just say i don't think that's i don't think that's what that scene is about i think that scene is i think that scene is just about i don't know i think it's just about trauma and like I just, I guess for me personally, and I, and part of it is also just like my stuff. Like I, I had a really rough week myself with my own like trauma and anxiety. And I've been reading a book about trauma and I've been thinking a lot about trauma and I've been thinking a lot about what it feels like and what happens when you're in the grip of, you know, like when you have PTSD and, and basically what happens is like your brain is in a constant state of fight or flight or free of, of survival mode, you know, and, and that means that, and that pushes you to do things or not do all sorts of things that wind up being destructive in the long run. But when you're in it, there's not much you can do about it because you're like the rational part of your brain is shut down. Um, I guess I was just primed to watch that scene and see two people who are locked in that experience and just really feel devastated and sad about the ways that trauma breaks people over and over and over again and makes them um them unable to have compassion for each other. And I just felt a lot of compassion for them. I no, I I agree. I mean, I I I mean I I also like I I felt like I love them both so much and I like and I love their relationship so much. And I like I definitely feel like, you know, like Paige and Lindsay, like just, just fucking killed it. They like, killed oh it. My God. I mean, it was incredible. Like they're both just like mesmerizing to watch. And I like, and I also like, I, you know, I agree with you. Like, I think, I think that like what you just said is like, I, I agree that that is what that scene is about. And I think that's what they, I think that's what the writers wanted us to feel. Yeah. I, I think, think that's what is intended, but, yeah. I, but I do hear you. I, I do absolutely hear you. And I think you're right about all the reasons why it didn't necessarily land that way. Yeah. And I think, um, I guess for me, so I think where, where I'm, where I'm at with it is like, I still like, like I, I have not, you know, given up faith to, that they can stick the landing. I think what happens next yeah. makes the, like what happens next will shape how in the long run I feel about this. I, I think the reason this one landed so hard is because it felt like, like watching Abby's pain be framed as a way to advance Raven's character arc in so many ways in this episode cast a different light on the way, like it had kind of been doing that for Kane, but it, but like there'd been a little bit more of Abby in that. So it didn't quite hit me sort of so hard. And this time I was like, oh, wow. Like everything's about whoever walks into the room, gets upset and then leaves. And like, that's whose POV we're in the yeah, whole time. Totally. You know? And then, and then also, also the, the place where the story ends in this episode for Abby, I think the way, the way that it's where it stops. Um, you know, we don't like, the the consequences of that incident with Raven with Raven for Abby are are suspended. Right. Like we don't know what they are yet. Right. And I and and so for me, like I, I completely agree with you that, you know, like that it's it's created, probably unintentionally created a tremendous sort of a set of troubling implications. Um framing the way that this episode frames what happens. Uh, around what it means for Raven. 
Um, and, and I'm kind of like, okay, I'm like, okay, I will suspend my final judgment about this, this particular piece of this, of Abby's story until we see what, if any, the repercussions are for yeah. Abby. So if yeah. we return to Abby and this turns out to be the rock bottom moment, if this is the thing where she's like, I have to look myself in the face and realize I fucking shocked Raven Reyes to the floor because she was going to smash a thing. Like, like I, like if this is the thing that pushes Abby to look herself in the right. face and say, I am, I've been lying to myself about being in control of my addiction. My addiction is con- in control right. of me and I need to turn it around. Um, I will, I will, be, I'll be much more able to sort of retroactively forgive me this too. as being like, well, you ca- like I don't like the framing, but overall it was it was like I understand yes. how this was an yeah. important beat in Abby's story. So, but but like as a standalone episode and as an episode where we stop and then we have two weeks off, it's a rough place right. to leave that dangling. Yeah, you know, I, I, it totally is. I will say I think what I what I think um, broad strokes what I think works best about it in terms of. Um, the sort of the big picture of moving Abby's story forward. And it, and it may be something that like, when we, when we find it where we land with it and we get to it, this may very well end up being one of those things that plays totally differently on binge watch, you know? But, um. Oh yeah, for sure. But I think what I, what I like about what it's doing is I actually feel like the, the depth of the emotional truth of, um, Abby pushing away from her, Anyone who is, um, you know, anyone who is sort of asking her to face things she isn't ready to face yet. You know, like the first person that she does that to is Kane. You know, like she, she's like she, and then the second person she does it to is Raven. I feel like what that could be teeing up that I'm really hopeful about is that the third person where the impact is different is Clark. I yes, think agreed. It, agreed. I think it could really be like if this is opening up space for like you know we're you know and it's like it's so hard to watch her so isolated it's so hard to see you know, like she left the bunker she's in this beautiful place but she's still trapped and miserable alone in the dark and suffering and never gets to go outside I mean it's just like like it's just it's really hard to watch her like this but I feel like if this is sort of the like the kind of descent into you know she got out of the bunker but she's still not free because the prison was not the bunker the prison was this addiction right you know and right. and so that so in that context I think the um how how sort of miserable it is to watch her you know, in so isolated that like her only friend is a serial killer. Like the only person who really like <laughs> appreciates and values her is Vincent, who eats feet. You know, um, like, <laughs> it really sucks for Abby. Um, yeah, but um, but I do what I what I'm hopeful about. Just sort of knowing what we, what we know about the kind of the coming convergence of all of these stories is that. Um, you know, I think that it, I, I think that it wouldn't make sense for Raven directly to be the person who, like, if 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 one person is going to say the right thing that flips the switch for Abby to be like, yes, you're right, I'm going to make this choice. I think it makes sense that it wasn't Kane because Kane is too close, and his own pain, 
made him like not able to be helpful. And I think Raven, yeah. and he was very his, similarly, he was her enabler for so long. Yeah, yeah. Raven, Kay was his her enabler for too long. Raven is too close to it because of her mother, because of her own trauma. And so I feel yeah. like, um, so so I think the I think there's two options. I think it's possible that the person who does or says the thing. That, that shifts her thinking could end up being a completely neutral person. Like it could be something Vincent says, or it could be looking at McCreary yeah. and, and, and a revert, like, I don't want to be that. I want to, you know, like something. Or Dioza. Or Dioza. Yeah. The way she's kind of, Dioza becoming kind of Kane's get a grip friend. You know, she could also be that for, you know, for Abby. It could be related to the pregnancy, but I do feel like they're opening up a lot of space for the possibility that it could be Clark. And I think that yes, Clark is the person for whom it makes the most emotional sense. And also, you know, like Clark's been in the bunker for long enough, spending enough time with Indra that like, I think we could safely shorthand, like it would make sense if Clark arrived back, you know, in Shallow Valley with some basic sense of what was already happening to her mother just from things that Indra had told her. You know, we, we so she could... You know, she could sort of arrive ready to, like, ready to help. And she would be just as motivated as Abby is to find the solution to save the miners because, like, she's got to deal with Diosa. She's trying to, you know, hold up her end up. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, so I, I, and I feel I like see it just being like, like Abby seeing herself now through her daughter's eyes might be enough, you know, like yeah. Clark being the mirror, you know, to kind of be like, oh shit, like, <laughs> yeah, like this well, is, you know, I have to, I have to get it together. Yeah. And, and the, also the sort of the, you know, and I also wondered when I was thinking about last night, um, that, that is, I mean, Part of me is like, well, this is too fanfic to ever happen. But also, I said that about a lot of things that have already happened. So, um, but I, but I kind of love the idea, the possibility that it could be Maddie. Like, I, I think what would That'd happen if, if Maddie, like, like Maddie encountering Abby and Abby learning, like, you know, how Clark talked about her mother when they were separated and the vision. Like, and, and so, like, if the thing that flips the switch, like, this would be like my, like, if I, could, if I could have anything that I wanted, I would love for the idea of what flips the switch for Abby to be, like, remembering the person that she used to be through seeing, like, the Abby that Maddie sees, the Abby that Maddie mythologized in her head, you know, like, Abby who, who, you know, brokered peace with the grounders because she saved Lincoln from becoming a reaper, you know, and, you know, and who is the chancellor who like, you know, led their people in peace and who did all these, inc- you know, and saves lives, you know, and like a healer and does all these sort of heroic things. And that the desire to be that Abby again and to get back that version of herself through the way that Maddie sees her as a way to remind her how her own daughter sees her. Um, that I think could be incredibly powerful because then it becomes about yeah. like, it's about Clark and about that relationship in that that's like, that's sort of the lens of it, but it becomes about Abby being like, I don't want to be this version of myself. I want to be that other person who had that power and strength and tenacity. And, and I want to fight this, you know, and, and that it coming not from the outside, not from Kane saying, you know, like Dioza stopped giving her pills and cut off her stash, but coming from Abby being like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that, you mm-hmm. know, so, um, 
So that, like, having, you know, looping Maddie into it, especially knowing that she's very much, I think, grafted to the Polis storyline might be wishful thinking. But I think that there's a way, um, I think Clark's going to be coming back very soon. Like, I mean, I think we're, my guess was always that, um, that probably episode 10 would be where we would get Abby sort of making the decision to go into detox because I think then with 511 being the flashbacks and, and I, I think it's fair to have some expectation that how Abby becomes an addict, like how the addiction sort of first becomes manifested as a real, real problem would be a piece of those flashbacks for them. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So I mm-hmm. think that sort of le- leaving at the end of episode 10 with like, you know, Abby beginning to go into withdrawal or, you know, or sort of hitting that moment of like the pivot. And then we jump back six years to sort of how she got that way. And then the finale is, you know, Abby having to perform medical miracles while in, you know, opioid withdrawal, which is physically brutal and incredibly dangerous is a wonderful Mm -hmm. high stakes finale plot. (laughs) Um, Yes. Yes. So, (laughs) so I'm hopeful that we're approaching the point of the pivot. I like the idea of Clark being hardwired into it. And like you said, like I do, like, I, I think that, um, I think it, you know, it creates incredible, like, it's impossible not to have deep, deep empathy for both of these women. I just feel like I'm, what I'm still waiting for and haven't quite gotten yet is, you know, it feels a little bit like it's like the season three Clark problem. It's like you're doing these big extreme things. And all I want is a little bit more of a sense of your interior life as you're doing them. So I feel like I get what it looks like from your point of view, you know, and that's what I think. I is to- yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I just want like, but all I want is like one little sequence where we see Abby alone in a room um, like going through her routine or struggling with her pills, like some, some, some moment where we get a, a glimpse, like you were saying, into instead of just like when we see Abby is when somebody walks into the room when they, right. like, when they leave. Like it would be nice to have a little moment of like, like what is the struggle that Abby is going with within herself? Like some way to depict that, which is one of those things. It's like it's hard to do that on TV. Yeah, and because it's like you know versus a novel, but but like even just like. I don't know, just like Abby waking up and looking at her pill bottle and like putting it down and then, and then, and like, I'm not going to take it down and then going back and being like, and then take it again. Some way to shorthand sort of like she's struggling, shorting, shorthanding that, that internal struggle rather than just seeing it manifest as people being like, this makes me feel bad. And she's like, I'm sorry, I can't right. stop, you know. So. And then, you know, or, or giving her, <laughs> or giving her someone to talk to that she could, um, be honest with, which I also get is problematic because like part of, you know, like part of the process of, of her addiction is, you know, like, like withdrawing from people, withdrawing into yourself and becoming more isolated. So like, you know, so that could maybe be a way that they could use, use Vincent or use McCreary or use Dioza because they're the sort of only people that she really interacts with. But, um, yeah, so I, so I am like, I'm, I am ready to be brought back on board. This was just sort of, to me, this, just from my point of view, this felt like the season's first real big kind of narrative misstep, but I feel like it's yeah. all fixable. And I agree too. I mean, I think it's like, to me, it feels like I'm, I'm suspending, I'm suspending final judgment on, on, this as a move in the full story until later on but i but i do i do like sort of agree that like the framing is i i don't think i don't think it landed in the way that it actually wound up on the screen i don't think it landed quite the way that 
it was intended to or, or quite the way that I would have liked it to. You know, I yes. think, I do think it kind of opened up a bunch of unintentional um, repercussions or, or unintentional um, sort of uh, um, implications um, that are sort of unfortunate that I wish they hadn't that, you know, like you're saying with a few tweaks might not have happened. Yeah. But they did. And so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult and people are, you know, a lot of people have a lot of very strong reactions to it um, that I, that I completely understand where they came from. And I, and I totally understand, you know, um, among the sort of Abby fans, the frustration with it, even though I, I personally didn't read it that way, but I, I mean, I, I absolutely see where that, where that view is coming from. I do think it, and it's one of those things where it's like, I think it is, I think there's like, there's issues in the text on the screen, like we were talking about that kind of exacerbated those responses in ways that weren't necessary per se. And so that's always just kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) If I could just tweak a couple of little things, it'd be great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Didn't quite work right. Um... But the, the nice thing about season five is that we've so rarely ever had to say that this season. It's so nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I, I feel like everything else is strong enough that I still feel like yeah. it's still an exceptionally strong season. And and I feel like as a person who loves Kane and Abby, it's still a really, I think, a kind of extraordinary level of like foregrounding of their significance in the story, which I am always grateful for. Yeah. Like I'm always grateful when Kane Kane and Abby are this important, you know? Yes. And and very plot relevant. And and again, and I'm I I remain hopeful and optimistic that this is like merely a sort of like misstep in presentation and that the rest of Abby's story is going someplace. That's my hope. Yeah. You know, that's going to wind up being cathartic, you know, that, and like you said, that, that's one of those things where like later on when it's on Netflix and we can all watch it in one go, instead of having to wait weeks in between things Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. it, that it might play very differently. And so, yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel. So, you know, so we'll see. We'll, we'll cross our fingers. Yes. Um, okay. I gotta go. Cause I have I have date night to get to. I have to eat some food and then go to bed at like 8.30. Um, <laughs> so this is what happens on date night when you're 36 <laughs> and you've been married for 14 years. <laughs> oh, you guys are wild. <laughs> so wild. Um, but we will be back in tragically two weeks mm-hmm. uh, because of stupid 4th of July. Pfft. America, whatever. Ugh. Um, boo. Uh, with uh, episode five hundred nine, which is, I believe, six emperor Tyr- Tyrannus. Is that correct? Well, this is another one that has two titles. It it was this is is both the warrior's will and six emperor Tyrannus, right? Or am I talking about two different episodes? No, no, no. I think the warrior's will is five ten. Are we on five ten? No. Oh. This was 508. The next one's going to be 509. Okay. Never mind. I'm <laughs> completely confused. Okay. I, then- I was also very confused. I so With all the breaks and everything, I lose track. But yeah, yeah. so this is, okay. next one is 509, Six Emperor Tyrannus, I believe. And then 510 is The Warrior's Will. Great. Perfect. Without any apostrophes, which is interesting. Yeah, the that bugs me. do so. what? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, "This is already going to make me crazy." I can already tell. <laughs> um. Anyway, all yes. right. Don't go too crazy, kids. Yeah, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.